Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, but this, this happens all the time. How many times would you say you've been stopped? Probably in my lifetime I've been stopped one to three I mean, the memorable ones are probably six times, um, but it's, it's definitely in the 20s and 30s. I mean, probably since 1994, 20s and 30s. The worst one was uh, after Super Tuesday in Orange County. Uh, I was uh, campaigning uh, for Super Tuesday and uh, for, Obama. For, for Obama, and uh, after it was over, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Journey Smollett, who's uh, an actress on uh, True Blood, she and I were done campaigning. We decided to see a movie. After the movie, we went to Borders to get, uh, I wanted to get a housewarming gift for my manager. And uh, we pulled over. I, I pulled over to take a phone call uh, from my manager because, you know, I thought being a law abiding citizen, you're not supposed to drive and talk. So I pulled over, talked. Finished the conversation, pulled off. Five cars stopped us, and pretty much that was like the that was the most humiliating experience because like we had to get out the car. They made us spread on, you know, the car. They searched the car. We sat in the back back of the the uh, not their paddy wagon, the cruiser. Yeah, their car. And the whole time I was thinking like, God, please don't look in the trunk. Like, first of all, I felt like a criminal already. Like, okay, I got, I got stuff in the trunk. But the stuff I had in the trunk were um, psychology books and some Scrabble games. And in my head, I was like, there's no way that they're going to believe that that stuff belongs to me. Like, there's no way that they're going to. And so the whole time, I was just like, God, please don't. Please don't. She was trying to get her, like, her camera phone. She's like, this is unconstitutional. They're not, this is a legal search. They're, they're supposed to have a protocol for, them. you know, so that, you know, I've been, this is like the night before the Grammys. The night before, the night before the Grammys in 2010 when I won. So it's like, this happens all the time. So all these examples you've given of being stopped, whether at the airport or in a car or by cops, can you explain? Because we hear legally, I mean, now it's been ruled unconstitutional, stop and frisk in New York. But what it does to you? Um, it is absolutely probably the most humiliating, lowest, lowest uh, feeling a human being can have. Twice this happened in front of dates. And all I kept thinking about was like, man, like nothing's more emasculating than to be emasculated in front of a girl that you like. You know, like there's just, just no coming back from that. And it's sort of like an unspoken thing. Like I always felt like even afterwards, like there's this unspoken cloud of the question of my manhood. Because, you know, and that's why I'm often shocked when I see footage of people and they talk back to cops. Like, I want to do that, but it's like, you know, even watching Fruitvale, like I was like, no, don't, don't, like, just get on your knees, just don't, don't, you know, you can die. 
And that's, it's, it's, it's the most humiliating, emasculating feeling I've ever had. That's, I only feel low when that happens, you know, even, even if it's playful. Uh, in Philly, whenever we finish a Roots album, I give it the car test. So even driving up and down Broad Street in Philadelphia, I once got stopped three times. And, you know, the first two times they were just like, they looked, they just like, oh, it's you. They let me go. Third time, it was guy, oh, man, it's you. And then I felt safe enough to sort of have casual banner with him. I was like, this is the third time I've been stopped. Like, what's going on here? And he was like, well, you know, I mean, you're, you're kind of in Temple University's neighborhood. And I was like, yeah, and? He's like, well, look at the car you're in. I drive a Scion. And my logic for getting a Scion was like, don't get a flashy car. Like, I come from the 80s. So in the 80s, when you saw someone in a BMW and a Mercedes, they automatically got pulled over because they were a drug dealer. So I thought, okay. I'll get a Scion. Well, first first of all, it was free. It was given to me. And it was boxy. It was Afro-friendly. Like, it didn't smush my Afro down. And so, it's a comfortable car. I like it. He said, you know, in this, you kind of look like you stole it from a, a college student. And I was like, oh, well, okay, I get it. So, in even choosing the car in my mind that would sort of not put me in that position. I actually wound up putting me in that position by driving that car. Because he said, if you were in a, if you were in an SUV, we would just thought you wanted Philadelphia Eagles or something. Like, like, oh, okay, that's the car you belong in. If your initial investment is a half a billion dollars and your apartments are up in March, you should have X amount of dollars rolling in by the end of this year. Ah, X amount. That's very good, isn't it? Not only that, you can depreciate the entire building for the full amount. Depreciate. Mmm, very good. I like that. And we found a way to get around this fair housing crap. Ah, good. Getting around the crap. That's good. By keeping the rents high, we're going to appeal to a select class of people. Select class. Very, very good. We'll keep the eggplants out. Ah, good. We don't want any vegetables. No, no, the jungle bunnies. Of course, they'll eat the vegetables. Boss, can I, can I talk to him? We're going to keep out the niggas. The what? The niggas. We'll keep them out. Yes, sir. You are talking to a nigger. Context of white supremacy. Justice Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, August 15th, 2013. So I have been told. We will be back for the remainder of the week, white people permitting. Uh, the book study session tomorrow, fourth installment, The Warmth of Other Sons, Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, the last two weeks, thoroughly enjoying and uh, quite informative in my view. Uh, hopefully that will continue. Uh, and we have really not got that far into the book. It's so large. I think we've still only done about a quarter of the book. So if you have not been tuning in, uh, I would encourage it. You can see a lot of familiar behavior patterns with regards to the way that black people have been responding uh, 
pitifully in most instances, but responding nonetheless to the system of racism, white supremacy. That'll be tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The compensatory call-in is Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, and Sunday, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing back again. Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, full week context of white supremacy. Uh, the audio clip that we began with, uh, victim of racism, Quest Love, I uh, read his essay in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's killer uh, a few weeks ago. I think a lot of people saw it, kicked up a lot of attention. Even a suspected racist female uh, took to write a rebuttal and point out how she thought Questlove was wrong in, in his assessment. Uh, he was on Democracy Now! with uh, Gus's favorite white woman, Amy Goodman, uh, he was a guest on yesterday. He was actually on for pretty much the whole program and uh, most of it, what you heard, they were talking about racism. Uh, he gave some more of his thoughts on what happened with Trayvon Martin and just being a black male. He shared a lot of incidents uh, of him being stopped by enforcement officers. You heard quite a bit in the clip uh, just there, uh, his view about how humiliating and emasculating the whole uh, experience is uh, pretty interesting stuff. You can check it out on uh, democracy now. They also talked about the role of uh, Don Cornelius and Soul Train Cowbell would be ringing there. It's very interesting, very interesting interview. Anywho, uh, the piece at the end from the 1979 film, The Jerk by Steve Martin. I will allow our guest to explain the relevance of that since she kicks off her book with that. Uh, our guest for today's program, one of the few times that Gus actually met the guest in person before they came on the program. That doesn't happen too often, but it did in this case. Uh, we met at the 2010 White Privilege Conference, courtesy of Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. That would be another cowbell, uh, where I had seen her repeatedly throughout the week in passing. Uh, There's so many people at the conference and so many different uh, workshops. I've said before, it's, it's kind of like 60 different conferences because what your experiences will depend on which workshops you attend and who you saw. So 10 different people could go and all get a very different experience. At any rate, I had seen her many times throughout the week and the final day, I think that Saturday, I was actually at her workshop. I don't even think I knew that she was doing a workshop I had planned to attend at the end of the week. Uh, talking about the creation of the white race, how that happened, what it means to be a white person. Uh, it was one of the best workshops that I attended. Uh, it was one of the, really, it was tops with regards to being honest about racism, white supremacy. Most of the workshops that I attended did not have that level of honesty and just, you know, useful information. I uh, spoke with her after the workshop and she agreed to be a guest on the program. She visited with us way, way back in 2010 uh, to discuss that particular workshop, a lot of the information there, uh, as well as I thought it was great. She talked about how under the system of white supremacy, white people memorialize their acts of terrorism against non-white people. She gave tons of examples with regards to the Texas Rangers now being a baseball team, super popular, and they have a long history of brutalizing, massacring non-white people, uh, the Washington Redskins, lots of different examples. I would even say Andrew Jackson should qualify with him being on the $20 bill. Uh, at any rate, uh, it also, I have to, have to, have to, have to uh, bring up at the conclusion of the workshop, uh, this was a highlight moment. Conclusion of the workshop, great information. I think at this point I'd already asked to see if we could get her as a guest on the program back in 2010. 
and she agreed and she was about to leave and she asked for a hug. And I said, well, you know, didn't you just say that you were a racist? And she said, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. And so we had an amicable handshake and she departed uh, within, I think, 20 minutes. The founder of the White Privilege Conference, Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr., uh, he came and chastised me and said, did, did uh, this white woman, did she request a hug and you refused her? And uh, I just remember being so stunned, like, wow, I cannot believe that this got back to the director so quick and I'm being fussed at for declining a hug. Uh, and I thought in the whole history of racism, white supremacy, only at the white privilege conference can a black male be chastised for not hugging a white woman. Classic moment, which actually we discussed on her first visit to the cows. You can hit the archives, May 2010. Uh, she authored a book since then, her book, The Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today. She lived in, or she, actually she was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, lived in Belgium for six years before her family relocated to Victoria, Texas. Uh, she says it was this experience, attending school, living in Texas, that informed her understanding of race, racism in America. Uh, she is currently a lawyer and professor of sociology and criminal justice at St. Xavier University. She is also a former Chicago police officer and holds a Ph.D. from Northwestern University. Pleasure to have her back on the program. Joining us for the second time, Professor Jacqueline Battalora. Let me see if I can locate her line here. Let's see, Professor Battalora, is this you? It's me. Nice to be back with you. Outstanding. Glad to have you back with us. Uh, hopefully, listeners, if you did not hear her first visit on the program, pay attention. Should be interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing a bit of your Thursday evening uh, for folks who this might be their first time hearing from you. Any background information you think that they should know about you and the work that you do? I'm a white woman um, in the United States of America, and um, I was clueless to that fact for much of my life, um, and I had glimpses that there was something about whiteness probably in high school, um, and I pursued undergraduate and then graduate studies and in, in sort of reflecting back on those studies, I can see that much of my educational pursuit has been to understand that experience. Um, and now I know that it is the experience of whiteness. Um, and so that's what I, uh, where I have chosen to focus my um, research and anti-racist work um, since graduating from Northwestern. Uh, before we get to the book, um, I guess a couple things. Uh, number one, at the White Privilege Conference, and you can correct me uh, if my memory is in, is bad or failing me. Uh, at the White Privilege Conference, uh, you in your workshop said that you had a child with a black male. Was that accurate? Um, no, I, I dated a black male in dated high school in Victoria, male. Texas, okay. and it was it was through that relationship and and. I had I had the very tangible experience of 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 experiencing myself as a white person who then started to lose her whiteness, but of course I was still the same skin color, um, and so it was actually in that relationship and and through that experience that I realized white white isn't biological that there's something else going on. 
Okay. Appreciate the correction. No child, but you did have, uh, are we saying this is sexual relationship with a black male? Um, this is an intimate relationship for three years, high school and a year beyond. And we're still the best of friends. My, my good friend, Ricky Brigham. Okay. Uh, when you, I don't use the term whiteness. Uh, I feel like it's, it's not the most accurate term. I know it's very popular and lots of folks uh, use that term. I don't use it because I feel like we're not really being truthful about what's going on here. I feel like the term whiteness uh, tends to be synonymous with racism, white supremacy, particularly the way that it's used. Uh, if you don't think that's the case, that's fine. Uh, you can extrapolate on all that as we go. But you said that you, in this experience, you say having an intimate relationship with a black male that you experienced losing your whiteness, uh, what does that mean exactly? Well, because I was treated, I began to be treated different, differently by white people. Um, and so I began to, I mean, I, I couldn't have put it in these words at that time, um, but I knew something was happening. And now I would articulate it as I that white white was not just, having light skin, but it was compliance with rules, largely set by white men. Um, and that when you don't follow the rules, which for a white girl is to date white men only, um, you start to lose some of the regular unearned advantages that white people get. Hmm. Were you? Did you get mistreated? Did you get harmed? Did you lose... Resources. Oh, sure, I had friends whose parents told them, you know, not to hang out with me. Um, you know, my, I had a, a sibling who was engaged whose future mother-in-law, um, you know, reprimanded her because of me. Um, yeah, there were, there were numerous um, situations that weren't pleasant. Hmm. Okay. Um, to me, and I'm just about being accurate here, uh, I have said consistently, I think, white people... They cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. If so, they will get in trouble with other white people if they violate the codes and statutes that a white person is supposed to abide by under racism, white supremacy. To me, that does not sound like you lost your spot on the white team. Sounds like you're still a white woman getting all the goodies that go along with being a white person. And I suspect practicing racism, white supremacy consciously and or unconsciously. It sounds like you just got some other white people, probably racist. It sounds like you just got them upset. Maybe they said something to you uh, to let you know that they did not approve of your conduct uh, and or told some of your other white friends, white family members, white associates that they did not approve of your conduct and that maybe they should distance themselves from you. Is that accurate or am I not understanding? Well, that? you know what? I, I just think we have to, this, this issue of race is incredibly complex. And you'll notice um, in my book, I don't even use the word racist. And, and I don't use it because I don't find it very helpful. Um, and I find it helpful for my students, understandably so, who are really angry at having to be confronted with white supremacy every day. And, and, and for those students, it's part of a healing process, which is completely understandable. Hmm. I don't think you I find, oh, okay, go ahead. I find um, it helpful um, to talk about, I mean, I define whiteness in the book, and, and I reference not only those who are labeled white, um, but it, it is meant to capture not only that group, 
but the social structural advantages that are are today and historically have been conferred to that group of people. So it's meant to capture um, both the systemic um, white supremacy built into our systems of thinking, our physical systems, structures, um, our penal system, our law enforcement, law period, educational system, the structure of our cities and suburbs and neighborhoods, um, etc. Now, to get back to your um, your comment, I think that there are so many elements of of unearned white advantage, and um, I, I guess I would say that in my those experiences that I had as a kid. Um, or as a young person dating um, an African-American man, um, I, I was, in terms of everyday white advantages, I got most of them. You know, certainly when I went to pay for something at the store, I wasn't asked to produce my ID like the black or brown person next to me. Um, I wasn't pulled over by law enforcement um, unless I went into a black neighborhood, right? Then I was there to buy drugs, of course, that's the assumption. So in, in those cases, white people do get pulled over. Um, and so, so I was excluded from some of the advantages of whiteness in that um, certain conversations that I would have been assumed, for instance, the, the racist joke. I was fortunate to not be included in that um, when people knew I, um, that I dated Rick. That's fine, but it's one of those um, ways in which folks, white folks who date um, non-white people um, begin to experience whiteness as something that's, that's not biologically bound, that, that's much more um, ambiguous, much more um, rule-based than biology. I agree uh, completely. Um, we are talking about racism, white supremacy, and specifically with the white race. We are not talking about biology. I think that is extremely important. Totally agree with that point. I do think that's uh, something that causes a lot of confusion, uh, particularly for victims of racism, non-white people, in understanding that white people choose whom is a white person, whom is not a white person, and that the criterion for making that decision changes. Uh, you touch on that in the book, how it's very fluid uh, and undefined, uh, which is to their advantage because white people just get to decide who's going to be white and who is not white. But going back to the question, um, I just don't agree. I think this would be a major point of contention uh, in your book. And I would ask listeners to just think. I've said consistently, think of racism, white supremacy as a crime. Many times when talking to individuals, they talk about how complex and complicated racism white supremacy is one of the ways to get a better understanding think of it as a crime because it is think of it as any other crime if we were talking about robbery rape terrorism any other crime do you remove the label of the perpetrator when you talk about other crimes when you hear people talk about other crimes if they're talking about arson do they remove the label and say, well, we're going to talk about arson, but we are not going to label anyone specifically an arsonist? We're going to talk about rape, but we're not going to label anyone as a rapist. 
We're going to talk about terrorism, but we're not going to label anyone as a terrorist. I contend, and this is a pattern, consistently with racism, white supremacy, this is the only crime against individuals. And this is the biggest crime on the planet, in my opinion. In my opinion, this is the only crime where consistently there is an effort to remove that label and say, well, we're not going to use racist, not going to use that term, not going to use white supremacist. You said, I don't think it's constructive. I might be paraphrasing, but I don't think it's constructive to use that term. And I could not disagree more strongly. I think it is extremely important. That is one of the principal problems in not being able to accurately identify what it means. I, to I be would disagree that person. I don't accurately I identify, am going, but I, I am going to ask that white. you not interrupt. Hang on, because I, I am letting you talk without interrupting, and I want the same courtesy. Okay. Now, as I said, I think that is extremely important. You said you don't even use the term racist in your book. You use the term whiteness. And I already said that in my view, this is a pattern that I've seen with some of the people that you mentioned who've also been guests on our program. Dr. Peggy McIntosh, Noel Ignatiev, many of the folks at the White Privilege Conference in using the term whiteness. And I've said consistently and some of our other guests have also said it's not the most accurate term. We're really moving away and what we're talking about with regards to white people practicing racism, white supremacy. If we're getting down to behaviors, if this is not about biology, this is about doing. And we have to be honest about that. In my opinion, I could be incorrect. Uh, if you want to go ahead and respond, go ahead. I am in complete agreement with proper labeling. And I believe the best label is white supremacy. And I've used I use it consistently consistently throughout the book, and and I end the book reminding people that white privilege is something in academia we're all happy to use as the um, reference point. But the truth of the matter is, but for institutionalized white supremacy, white privilege doesn't exist. So the truth is to talk about white supremacy, and so that's the route that I have found most helpful and most useful. And I don't think it skirts around the problem because I argue in the book that the root of the problem is white supremacy. And the fact that we don't even see it anymore because it's absolutely normalized in every darn corner of the social systems that make up this country. Okay. We're going to go through the book, read some passages, so we'll get an opportunity to hear what you've written uh, you start the book referencing the 1979 film. I had a little sound clip at the beginning, Steve Martin's The Jerk. Um, very interesting film. It starts off with, I guess, a black family um, dancing, singing about cotton. And you have Steve Martin, who's a white person for people who don't know. Steve Martin, a longtime comedian, actor, uh, in the middle of this family. Uh, and he says that... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's the craziest film in the world. You have to watch this. Uh, why did you start with this film? What relevance does this have to your book, The Birth of a White Nation? Well, because I, I've thought about the film since I, you know, I, I was a, a young person in the 80s, so that's when that film came out. Um, and I thought about just the laughter in, in the theater when he says, I was born a young black child. Um, because the laughter only works if you see this guy and 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 see whiteness it it just for me it seemed to capture that the assumption that most of us have in this country that that these race labels are somehow rooted to biology um and so 
um, that's why I started with it because I wanted to I wanted to first name the fact that most of us presume that these race categories that we click off in government forms and educational forms and medical forms that that they have some truth um, in genetics or biology um, and then to show through his, historical information that that is doesn't hold any water. This, I would say, it is comparable to many of the blackface films uh, where you have a white person who somehow becomes a black person. Uh, if you want to think uh, Soul Man with Radon Chong, mm, um, yeah. even Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons, I was thinking that is almost identical to this film, Steve Martin, The Jerk, if you want a more current example uh, where I guess a white family, they leave this white child on the doorstep of a black family and they just take care of him and raise him as their own. Uh, it seems to be a lot of these types of films uh, throughout the system of racism, white supremacy, almost as though uh, there is an affinity for some sort of imagination that a white person could be either a black person and or in a black family and or both. Um, can you comment on that? Because there does seem to be quite a few of these types of films. Well, I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a film specialist by any means, but um, I think um, I, I I could just tell you, which maybe is not an answer that you're looking for, but I I would um, highly recommend the work of Eric Lott. Um, he's done this incredible historical research on blackface um, performance, and it's it's one of the smartest pieces I have. Um, ever come upon. Um, he doesn't really get into the more contemporary films. Um, it, it's more um, 19th century pieces, but it's it's he captures the layers and the complexity of the you know the imagination that is contorted and manipulated by white supremacy and um, these white the the imposition of um, white people's ideas upon the black body, and um, anyway, he's it, it's brilliant. I, I could never respond um, remotely adequately, um, but I would refer your listeners to Eric Lott's work. Okay. Uh, your book, Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today, uh, the acknowledgments, this is on page, uh, well, actually before the book starts, so in the acknowledgments section, uh, when I first identified myself in a self-conscious way as white, I was about 13 years old and living in southern Texas. I had moments where I experienced my whiteness as something contingent upon behavior. I came to realize that a white racial status was something that could be changed and perhaps even lost. Um, can you elaborate on this paragraph and especially this last sentence? I came to realize that a white racial status was something that could be changed and perhaps even lost? Sure. I, I really, we've already talked about this because I referenced the, um, the treatment that I had received dating an African-American um, man in, at that time period in that location of this country. Um, and, and so it was really in looking back and trying to make sense of that experience um, that that I saw whiteness being having this sort of um, degree of flexibility. Hmm. You say white as a racial status as something that could be changed 
and perhaps even lost. Uh, did at any point you lose your classification as a white person? Um, I did um, to to certain white people. Actually, to quite a few, actually. <laughs> I did. But in terms of what I clicked off on forms, that um, did not change. Hmm. Yeah, see, as a victim of racism... I, I feel- wish I could... Go ahead, go ahead. I, I, was, I was just going to add that I was actually, there was a term used in reference to me, and I, um, it just escaped me. Um, and, and it was a term that, that was meant to capture that I uh, was a white person, but who've, who has you know, lost her, her claim to whiteness. If I, if I remember it, um, it was used to refer to me a number of times during that time period. Okay. Uh, that's one I just, I don't agree. Um, I feel like that that's not being honest. Uh, if you say you're still filling out forms and, you know, as I said earlier, some white people, in my view, that's some white people, they're upset with you. They do not agree with what you're doing. They feel like you're breaking the code of racism, white supremacy. But uh, that's one of those things. As soon as you are no longer dating Rick, this black male, life is grand. No problems. You're still on the white team, getting all the benefits. And as I said before, and primarily practicing racism, white supremacy, that would have to be my suspicion. But I just I don't think that's accurate for any white person to say that they have lost their white status just as a result of oh. quote unquote, dating a black person. I, I didn't guess I didn't mean to say that I that I lost my whiteness. I, that would be ridiculous. I, I, I received all sorts of privileges, even while dating Rick, to, to those who didn't know about our relationship. Um, and so I, you know, I think that that's a misconstruction of what I'm saying. What I was trying, the, the idea, Gus, that I was trying to capture there was that could, could whiteness be lost? Yes, it could, because it's a frickin' construction. <laughs> and and it, is it something that in my lifetime will be lost? Absolutely not. In my daughter's lifetime, unlikely. But can it be lost? Absolutely, because it's a frickin' invention. <laughs> it's power being imposed. That's what I was trying, that's what I was trying to capture. I will I will hope that listeners can use their common sense and, you know, see if it makes sense. I've already given my view on it several times, so I'm not going to repeat myself. And I think a lot of this for the crux of me, it comes down to at the end of the day, uh, if being white means practicing racism, white supremacy, as you said, it's not biological. Uh, You say in your book, white culture is about practicing racism, white supremacy, everything about the system that white people have set up is about encouraging, promoting, supporting white people to terrorize and abuse non-white people and to get all the goodies and benefits that go with that. If that is the case, have you seen any evidence that white people are going to voluntarily stop practicing racism? Well, I would modify some of what you said before that. (laughs) To, I mean, look, you have... You have varying degrees of power that are practiced by different groups of white people. Um, and do all white people participate in, um, it, actually, and, and I'll throw this one out at you right now, um, I would argue that every single person who is remotely a success 
and I'm making little quotation marks in the air um, in this country, um, is actually required to participate in, to some degree, in, white, in, in promoting white supremacy just to be a success. I would appreciate if I can just get an answer to the question, uh, have you seen any evidence well, that white people are going to answer. voluntarily stop practicing racism? Uh, if you could give me a yes or no, then you can you know, give whatever you want. But that really gets down to the crux of it about my thoughts on the book and everything that's been said thus far. Well, I, I, w I would say that I, I, I see white people all the time who are willing to dive in and who are struggling to confront their own participation in white supremacy. Have, um, and, and part of why giving, you know, I find these yes or no questions for a response that journalists often want too simplistic and too black and white, if you will, um, that don't capture the reality of the world that we live in. <laughs> Again, and, I want listeners to use your common sense. Go ahead, but I want listeners to use your common sense when you're hearing these responses. Go ahead. That that's my response. Wowie, wowie! I don't think I got an answer to the question at all. Uh, to me, well, as maybe I didn't understand your question. Gus. You want me to say it um, again? Please. Okay. Have you seen any evidence that white people are going to voluntarily stop practicing racism? <laughs> um, my general answer um, is white, which white people? All white people? Definitely no. I, I have, there is no evidence that this group of humanity called white people um, are taking action to stop that. What I can say is that there are small pockets, and they are far too small and, and too infrequent, um, who are actively trying to confront their own participation in white supremacy and trying to do something positive about that which means um, take, trying to stop participation in racist actions. Are you in this small pocket of white people? Um, I hope that I am. What exactly are you doing to stop the practice of racism, white supremacy, even on an individual level? Well, that's, that's the only, that's the, the most significant level because it's the one we actually have some control over. Um, in lot, I try in lots of ways. Um, I have made it the focus of my research. Uh, I journal to keep myself aware uh, of whiteness. I do my best to um, be as well-read as possible um, on the institutions and structures that are reinforcing and participating in white supremacy. I purposefully chose to live where my community is racially very diverse. Where my daughter goes to school, when we're making choices at, at my daughter's public school, I'm trying to make sure I keep at the forefront the power of white supremacy that is impacting parents, you know, the good, good white liberal parent choices and trying to raise to the surface. Um, when you're choosing the AP classes, over supporting these other areas of the school, who are you really advancing? 
just in those er, living life every day um, is an opportunity to confront white supremacy. Mm. Uh, as a victim of racism, uh, I think it would be extremely easy for a white person to do all of those things that you just mentioned and still remain dedicated, steadfast and unwavering to the system of racism, white supremacy. Um, nothing about that really leaps out at me as, oh, wow, she's really going above and beyond. As Farrah Winfrey said when she was a guest on our program, admitted white supremacist, the most I can do is the least I can do. Uh, and that did not sound like the most a white person could do. Uh, and you said you do keep a journal. Do you write instances where you say, hey, I failed. I practiced. Oh, my God, I fail. Hang on. I, I fail. Specifically, where you con where you practiced racism, white supremacy, you mistreated someone because they were not white. You somehow participated, practiced racism, white supremacy. And if you can, list I, some I of those do. All, I miss. I miss. I'm sorry, Gus. I keep thinking you're done. I'm sorry. Oh, I am done. Are you I, done? Yes, I am done. I, I miss the mark every day all the time, and I, I do it in lots of ways. I, I, I practice, um, I, I, I participate in um, miscegenation, um, uh, assumptions about um, different racial groups, about religions, about gender, about sexual, sexuality. I, I miss the mark in, in lots of ways. But all the... With regard to that wonderful, beautiful quote, you know, the most I can do is the least I can do, is that's beautiful, but I only have each day to live, and each day in every moment you have one choice. Um, and I think it's so important. Um, I, you know, I'm a white person. I began this stating that, which means I learned all of the institutionalized and have been conferred all of the privileges and advantages that come with that um, in this country. And I, I own that. Mm. Mm. When we uh, last saw each other in person at the White Privilege Conference, and I said, didn't you just say that you were racist? And you said, yes. Is that still true? You, a white person, oh. that you are racist? I yes, it, it is absolutely true. I don't believe you can be a product of this culture and society and not be racially prejudiced. Impossible. Hmm. All right. I at least appreciate that. Um, I will get a few uh, quotes from the book here to see if you can uh, share with our listeners. Uh, and then I'll see if Justice has some questions. For folks that are listening in, the number to dial is 760-569-7676. And the code is 564 nine four three pound press star six if you have questions uh the number again seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and the code is five six four nine four three pound did i miss here when you first were given your list of of ways that you participate in practice racism you said you participate in miscegenation did i hear you correctly um i don't i don't think so did you say the word miscegenation I, um i meant to say misogyny if it okay. came out miscegenation i apologize <laughs> right on. i think she said miscegenation listeners can check i do make errors but i think she said miscegenation that might uh, I, I i may have i i meant i i meant misogyny and um 
Okay. Apologize for for the mis misspeech. Right on. Glad glad we got clarification. Folks can let me know if I didn't hear correctly, but I think she did say miscegenation. Okay. Uh, you start your book off. Uh, I think the well, actually, before I even get to that, who is your intended audience with this book? Um, well, I was writing it for a class that I teach, a first-year seminar course. At St. Xavier University? That is correct. Okay. What's the, what's the ratio makeup of your, of your class, like white and non-white? Well, it changes all the time, but um, actually we have the second highest diverse student population in the Chicagoland area. Um, my classes typically have... about 40, 45% white, um, and actually I'd say 55, yeah, I think that's about right, 55 non-white, and that's, and I would include in, in the non-white, um, even though technically they click off white, um, are, are Muslim students, because they are not conferred the everyday advantages of whiteness by any means. Hmm. I know you said it, it rotates, you know, depending on what group you have in, but I guess on average when you're doing this class, how many students that are black or that you think are black, how many, what percentage are black students? Um, well, let me just look at my, um, about 15%. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, so the book intended for your class, that is interesting to know, which is 40 to 45 percent white, 55 percent non-white, 5 percent black. Uh, you start off uh, talking about the beginnings in the United States and before, which you write, before you had a firm race identified as white uh, prior to individuals even being labeled as white. Uh, and you and you, we talked about this before when you were on the program in 2010 and in your workshop that Originally, uh, we're talking 1600s, uh, that you had a small number of black people. I think that is a hugely important point. Very few black people. Uh, in fact, you list uh, in your book as of 1650, uh, there were only 500 persons of African descent. That cannot, I could not highlight that enough times. But uh, in this time period, you really didn't have a quote unquote white race. Uh, that term wasn't being used. And you think that that is an important starting point for understanding racism, white supremacy, and white people because? Well, I, I'm actually, I was actually interested in the point where the reference to white people began. And when I started there, I had to go back further um, because I, I, I could find it in law, in, in the, the colonial legal record, like I mentioned in, it's in Maryland's modification to their anti-miscegenation law. Um, and so I, I was interested in finding out when um, legal texts first began to reference a group of humanity as white people. So that was my, um, my research focus. Once I did that, then I had to ask myself the question, well, okay, before these folks were referred to as British and other Christians or British and other freeborns, um, you know, what was wrong with those labels? Why didn't they work or why didn't they continue? And um, what gave rise to this new reference? Um, and so that's what I pursue in the first two chapters of the book. Okay. 
and I'm saying because I think one of the points you can correct me if I if I didn't read it accurately. One of the major points is that you had lower class, less powerful. I don't know what they would. They weren't labeled white at the time, so uh, British. Uh, freeborn people who would eventually be classified as white. You had these people working alongside with the small number of black people uh, and they worked together. Uh, you say that, you know, there was no evidence that these folks didn't get along, that they married, uh, lived together. You know, you really didn't have this animosity and right. abuse of black people prior to later on in the 1600s. Did I read that accurately? That is absolutely correct. Okay. Um, Okay. One of the one of the major points why I read all that, uh, you say that I guess there's some scholarly debate with regards to when this animosity with regards to, hey, we are going to be white. We're classifying ourselves as white and we're going to mistreat everybody that we say are not white. Uh, when did this start? When did this idea come to be? Uh, in my view, just the fact that and I mean, I cannot emphasize that enough. Only 500 individuals of African descent. Apparently, there are not that many black people here, individuals who would be classified as black. There are not that many of them here. Uh, in my view, I've seen consistently throughout the history of white supremacy, when you're in environments where it's a very low number of non-white people, even black people, as long as the number is very low, white people can function without too much animosity. They can appear right. to be very nice not lynching people, not killing everyone, not calling you names. It's when those numbers start to go up that things change drastically. That's one major point with regards to my view, because I think the idea, the notion for racism, white supremacy, even though they weren't using the term white, which I think is very important, even though that wasn't in existence in the early 1600s, I think the racism, white supremacy is already there. And you even concede some of the evidence with regards to language the language is already structured in such a way that things that are labeled black, dark are associated with something negative. Things that yep. are white are associated with something positive, uh, even close to God. Uh, and I would even point because you referenced it very early in the book, William Shakespeare's Othello. In my view, that is like a uh, 1600s version, uh, 1600s version of the O.J. Simpson saga, where you have a black male who is ran crazy over this white woman. I think you, I, in my view, I would say even Othello's popularity of this play, in my view, shows that you've already got strong elements of racism, white supremacy with regards to how black people are seen, particularly around the issue that is crucial in your book, what goes down in the bedroom between black males and white women. Am I sounding crazy? Is this illogical? Well, I, I don't think it's crazy, but I, 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 would, I would just offer one um, possible contour to that, and that is that um, that the British understood themselves um, as British, not white. I mean, part of their idea of themselves as British was that they were Christian um, and that they were, and then it became um, connected to whiteness. When, when numbers of, of um, members um, of native tribes became significant um, in whatever location British people um, imposed themselves. Um, and when the numbers of African persons um, became more significant. So it, it, it was their, their sense of themselves as British um, that put them over and against 
um, Native peoples, um, persons of African descent, and and they initially, anyway, put themselves. I mean, look at the the history of the British and the Irish. Um, uh, that looks very much like racism um, in terms of its treatment, in terms of how the British um, described and articulated, labeled and named, um, sought to enslave African people. Uh, excuse me, I, um, Irish people. Um, but it, it wasn't successful, um, and they utilized those same tactics upon Native people, and we know that enslaving um, that group was not terribly successful, although annihilating them was, um, and that they then turned to um, persons from Africa to impose that sort of treatment. So that, what I'm trying to get at, Gus, is that I think um, – I'm not sure we can call it white supremacy. Would would you call it white supremacy when it was imposed against the Irish, the same practices? What I would say is that I think white people have a long history of fighting and warring against other white people. Uh, to borrow Mr. Neely Fuller Jr., he's been a guest on that program many times, uh, to borrow his term, I think the system of, or according to his viewpoint, the system of racism, white supremacy, what white people did was just to take a royalist system that had already been in practice with regards to mm -hmm. abusing other individuals, exact example that you're talking about with what the British did to the so-called Irish, abusing these other individuals. And then it became, whoa, as we travel the world, wait a minute, we can just take this system and apply it on the basis of skin color, melanin, non-melanin. This will work much, much better. We can just say that everybody that is on our white team they are all a part of the royal family and they will reign supreme and we will just dominate everybody who is non-white. That way we won't have to be fighting amongst ourselves and the group that we're going to terrorize and abuse, they will be immediately recognizable on the basis of skin color. And we can just do this forever because they will always be distinct and we'll say, hey, that's the group we're dominating. All of us are down. I think that that would be my interpretation of what happened. And what I sought to do was capture... Um, what I believe is the moment in history when that um, treatment was applied on the basis of something called race. I mean, the idea of race didn't even exist in the 1700s. I mean, that in and of itself is a fiction um, that was created and imposed. But what I wanted to do, what I hope I did in the first um, couple chapters of that book, was to capture um, the moment in time when this treatment of of who's going to be part of imposing these this terrible treatment upon other groups of people when when that unit became white when it became about white people hmm. okay uh, this is also a very important one, uh, and this is to my point, as I'm saying, even though the term, as you point out, importantly, the term white is not being used uh, they're not classifying individuals as white in the early uh, 1600s. Uh, this comes a little later, uh, but I think the seeds are already there just in the way that I'll read. This is on page 17 of your book. In Virginia, a law was enacted in 1640 that prohibited those of African descent from possessing firearms. However, the law appears to have been ignored and unenforced. The 1640 enactment is noteworthy because it suggests a very early sign of a desire on the part of lawmakers to treat Africans in an inferior manner. It is equally noteworthy that this effort was apparently rejected by the community. Now, I would just take that paragraph right there. Now, you don't have the term white being used in 1640. That is 
in my, I mean, that is extraordinary. We are going to pick out and make a law. This is not just folks talking, but to make a law to say these folks cannot have firearms on the basis it's got to be of skin color of uh, them being mm-hmm. of African descent. And there are not that many black people there to, again, there are only 500 individuals. So it's not like they're teams of them. And even if the law was enforced, not enforced, whatever, the fact that it was made is extraordinary. And I think that goes to my point. The idea, the seeds are already there, even though it might not be as firm as it is now, even though they're not using the same terms. This animosity or designation of dark people as a potential threat that need to be monitored and controlled, it seems like it's already there. Absolutely. Well, that's why I cover um, the number of instances that I found um, that um, show the seeds of what became white supremacy. And, and I, I reference a number of them. Um, I think what is significant, though, and I try to keep this highlighted in, in those chapters of the book, is that um, those are largely de- derived from a very specific group of white people, and, and those are the lawmakers. But when you look at the masses of whites who are there, I mean, let, let's face it, at, at this point in time in Virginia and Maryland, there's not a lot of people, period. Um, and it, it was only, just to, to make a little correction, there were, there's only a record of approximately 500 persons of African descent in Virginia, the colony of Virginia at that time, um, not, not the entire you know, east coast um, of the colonies, um, and that doesn't include Maryland either. So, so there, were, there were more persons of African descent, um, but in um, Virginia, th- those are what the records indicate. Oh, um, so, yeah, so I, I just wanted to make that clear. Right. Did you have another point? I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Right on. I do not. Right on. Uh, I want to move uh, to the next chapter because I think this, I was in chapter one. I want to move to uh, some of chapter two where you talk about how this became so successful. But I want to double check with uh, our co-host, Justice, see if she has any questions. Uh, I do see we have some listeners who have questions, too, so I'll get them as well. Uh, and then I'll get to chapter two. Uh, Justice, if you have some questions for Professor Jacqueline Battalore, your line should be open. Please proceed. Uh, Justice, are you with us? Not hearing anything? Have you heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, uh, Ms. Battalore. Yes, hello. Hello. Uh, what do you mean when you say white privilege? Well, I, I don't. I don't use it actually most of the time in the book because I, I would. I find it most helpful to talk about um, white supremacy and, and especially institutionalized white supremacy. So, for to, to me, and, and as I state um, in the book, um, white white privilege is is only the result. But if we want to really talk in accurate and honest ways. Um, we need to talk about white supremacy. How is your work constructive in working to replace white supremacy with justice? Well, here, here's why I wrote the book. I, I had been working on white awareness um, trainings since 1996, I think was the year I started, and what I realized uh, or what would happen is I'd, we'd get into these co- um, conversations about contemporary matters that raised race to the surface. 
and inevitably it would the conversation would just decline into um, around without it ever being spoken of course around just pervasive stereotypes about white people and about non-white people um, and I just realized this was fruitless that I wasn't doing um, I was not going to be helpful <laughs> in in creating greater awareness of institutionalized white supremacy um, without a historical foundation being laid so that we were not um, speaking it in a vacuum. We needed, what I realized is that most folks in this country don't know the history of, of white supremacy in this country. Um, uh, and until we can share some knowledge, and, and the book that I wrote here is, is only one very, one possible route to that kind of knowledge, and there are thousands of, of historical avenues to take that can be helpful. M mine is just one. I'm a lawyer, so I was interested in law. Um, and so, and, and I, I think throughout the book, I keep um, anti-miscegenation laws and um, labor struggles as, as a constant thread um, to, to hold the various chapters together, because to me, um, I, I kept seeing those as so significant. But, but you could take lots of different historical routes. And so this is the one that I took, because I knew that if I'm going to talk about race in my classes, if I'm going to attempt to m move myself and others in a more constructive, just way in the world through white awareness trainings, I, I have to have a shared historical something um, that everyone in that group can, can share, like a base of knowledge, because people don't have it. And so people end up talking out of stereotypes, which is what people do know, sadly, because they're regularly repeated and in your face every time you turn on a television um, or, you know, watch a YouTube or the other sources of media that we turn to. Um, and so that's, that's why I wrote this book, um, is to serve that purpose, to be one of many possibilities. I mean, I, I think, um, Gus, that you interviewed in the past um, Ian F. Haney Lopez, um, whose book is a, a, another fantastic route um, to build a historical foundation from which people can pursue historically grounded conversations um, around race. I um, heard you say last time that uh, you gave your uh, white students an assignment saying to tell their parents that they're going to marry a uh, non-white person to see what their parents' reaction is. Uh, I was just curious, do you still give your students that assignment, and what else have you learned from giving that assignment? Um, I do. Um, I continue to give it, well, you know, I mean, I have to admit some depression there, because I, what I find, which is completely consistent with the history that I write about in that book, is that white males are, the parent, white parents, give much more flexibility to white males in terms of their marital choice that goes outside of their racial identity, um, but that for white females, um, there, it is far less common um, for parents to respond in a positive way.
Um, and so I, in fact, I, I've, I just had typed up um, the last five years of student um, responses just to get t- number tallies of, you know, how many. And, and one of the things that I have students do is to say not only what they ca- can anticipate their parents saying when, when you t- share this news with them, um, but why? How do you know that that's likely to be what happens? Like, I, I expect them to give some concrete examples from their interactions, words they've overheard, um, again, to, to kind of give some substantiation um, to what their assumptions are. But, but I had, I've, I've had this tallied up. Um, and, you know, I mean, frankly, for the 21st century, it's depressing. But, you know, we, we just had a... a, um, a verdict in the Zimmerman trial, which is another just, you know, depressing piece of evidence that we we have, there is so much work to do to challenge white supremacy. It's deeply, deeply embedded. Uh, how do you get your white students to stop practicing white supremacy racism when you see or, or hear them practicing? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know that I do. Um, I, I know that I, that this work, this awareness of this history, um, I know that for many students it has a um, significant impact in terms of their awareness. Um, and whether that translates for them in how they choose to be in the world um, I, I don't I don't know I mean I'm a, I'm I'm not a theologian um, I don't do therapy with them I I teach a sociology class and so I offer the the historical socio legal um, information um, and I just make it clear that when we act in these ways we are enacting white supremacy and so you know you they make their own choices in the world how they wish to be what kind of person they want to be whether they wish to um, be those who either blindly um, continue white supremacy or they're going to take a stand Uh, one of the things that I do um, with my students is I do have them try to confront sort of real real world situations that students have subsequent to my class come to me and ask for advice. You know, how do I handle this? And um, you know, some of and so I, I share some of those situations with them, and I say, okay, let's say this happens. Um, you know, what are you going to do? And and what you want to keep your job? You don't want to lose it. And you know, sometimes I give them situations where um, they. I just say, look, you can respond this way um, and you'll very likely lose your job. And that's okay as long as you know that's where you're going. <laughs> and, and so I try to get them to think of other ways um, so that they can, they can push and take a stand um, and perhaps be less likely to move their job. Is there another avenue for you to, to challenge and push them? Um, so then we start to look at um, you know, political avenues and um, uh, other things like that. So that that's one thing that um, I do with this particular class. It's um, social construction of gender and race. How did you feel when your white friends didn't want to hang out with you when they knew you were with a black person? Um, well, I think I was I was upset and angry. Um, 
at the time, um, you know, I wasn't very sophisticated in my um, uh, in my analysis of you know what was happening and why. You know, again, I had lived in Europe um, for much of my childhood, and coming to Southern Texas was a pretty big shock to me. Um, and so, um, you know, at least I had had that European experience that helped me just know that that part of what I was experiencing or at least I could think so at the time, was, was in part regional. Um, and so I had that, but, you know, it felt, it felt crappy. And, and the truth of the matter is th- the only person who I could talk to at that time about, you know, what was happening and how I was being treated was Ricky himself. <laughs> so, you know, the truth of the matter is those instances in many ways just brought us closer because, you know, because, he, I didn't have to explain anything to him. You know, he lived with this nonsense every day. <clears throat> I knew, uh, I know you teach uh, mostly white people, and you said uh, you have concluded that white people are required to maintain white supremacy and will not be and will not be voluntarily replacing it with justice. Um, why do you want to? Uh, why do you want your main audience to be white people? Well, let me let me just clarify a couple things. Um, I I have said, and I say this um, in my classes all the time. I, I talk about it in in terms of of gender um, and race, and and we could talk about it in terms of other um, fault lines in our society as well. But because th- those two are the topics of my course, I, I talk about the fact that even women are required to participate in misogyny into our required to participate in our own objectification just to be successful um, and so um, by the end of that section of the course students can articulate the ways in which we all are required to participate in misogyny even women um, and so so anyway so that that's one part and then when I move into the race section of focus in the class, I begin with that same claim that we are all, all, not just the white kids, all of us in this country are required to participate to some degree, and of course degrees are important, I don't want to lose those, um, to participate in white supremacy just to be, a, to be successful, like they wouldn't be in college, um, they wouldn't be that kind of success already if they didn't um, participate in white supremacy to some degree. And then by the end of the class, I let them answer that on an exam. Thank you. Uh, Gus, go ahead. Context of white supremacy. Uh, I was going to read chapter or discuss a little bit from chapter two, where you talk about labeling and the exercise that you uh, do with your class, making one group the pures and putting uh, grading restrictions with regards to the highest grade that they can achieve based on if they are in the pures group or if they're in the non-pures group. Um, But I want to move just because of what you just touched on with regards to gender. I want to move a little bit further ahead in the book, and I'll just make note to to come back to that section. Um, You talk quite a bit in your book about white male patriarchy uh, with regards to what was happening uh, when the system of racism, white supremacy was being solidified uh, in the U.S. 
Uh, this is on page 38 uh, in your book. Uh, this is a quote, and then it goes to your own words. Magistrates prosecuted primarily white women and black men. White males claim the right to govern all women, regardless of race. The sole sexual possession of white women by white men assured perpetuation of the dominant pure white race. Your words. In this way, anti-miscegenation law worked to integrally, integrally link whiteness with the control of white women's and non-white men's sexuality and relationality. As part of the legal package of benefits for whites that the Virginia lawmakers passed in the aftermath of Bacon's rebellion, the benefits derived from anti-miscegenation law come to light through the emphasis of control within the language of the law and the enforcement practices that followed. From these, we see that the law largely controlled the sexual and marital relations of white women and non-white men and simultaneously made more women available to white men. Such a trade in women's bodies was nothing new. As moral, moral entrepreneurs, the lawmakers cite British nationhood, Christianity, and the prevention of abominable beings, in quotes, as rationale for the law. The law did far more than control the sexuality and relationality of white women and non-white men. It created a criminal. Where a child was born, the law created an abomination. Virginia's anti-miscegenation law of 1691 begins by describing children born of a biological parent understood to be English or white and a biological parent who was understood as Negro, mulatto or Indian as that abominable mixture and spurious issue. Through this descriptive alchemy, the General Assembly not only worked to create the human category white, but also a human body anathema to their colonial society. These children were shaped in law as representative of abomination and false descendants. Virginia's anti-miscegenation law required not only that a free English woman who gave birth to a child fathered by a man from one of the prohibited classifications relinquish the child, but also that she pay a fine or face five additional years of servitude. In this way, the law served a version of capitalism that relied on non-paid or underpaid laborers and highlights the sexual vulnerability of women laborers. The law blocked those relationships between whites and those of native tribes or persons of African descent that took an intimate and consensual form from beginning, excuse me, from the law blocked those relationships between whites and those of native tribes or persons of African descent that took an intimate and consensual form from being legitimized by the community and from receiving the protections and exercising the responsibilities created by marriage law. In addition, these laws placed the financial burden as well as the burden of public shame for mixed pregnancies upon women. White men who had children with women understood as not white did so largely to the advancement of their investment in property or that of the landowner for whom they labored. The law that linked a child's status as enslaved or free to the status of the mother legitimized the sexual violation of women of African descent, while anti-miscegenation law worked to violate 
the legitimacy of sexuality for all women. Two laws combined, according to Steve Martineau, to make normative the judicially authoritative violation of women's humanity by rendering women instruments. Women of African descent were made capital and thus instruments of wealth production. White women were made bearers of purity and thus instruments of white supremacy. Uh, this is page 38 and 39 from birth of a nation um i'll get your thoughts on this section what what is it that you hope readers understand from the passage i just read well i wanted people to to get that um the and people tend to to it, it, there are two very oversimplified ways in which anti-miscegenation law tends to get read including by academics um anti-miscegenation law I, I read it all the time in academic books. It's referenced as laws that made interracial marriage illegal. That is factually incorrect. Anti-miscegenation laws made it illegal only where one party was white from marrying various other non-white groups. So, so they didn't prohibit interracial marriages. For instance, a person of African descent could marry a, a person of Chinese descent. Um, this law didn't care about that. Um, what they cared about was this thing they invented called whiteness, white people um, at, around these ideas of so-called white purity. So that that's one comment to make about anti-miscegenation. Um, the other thing is that it gets treated as um, sort of this equal playing field for white men and white women, and that wasn't the case at all. Um, the w white men were rarely prosecuted for um, violating the law. Um, and when they did, it was because they um, dared the work of um, um, Bynum. I, I apologize, I can't remember her first name, but her work reveals um, that when um, white men were prosecuted for violating anti-miscegenation law, it tended to be because they dared to treat a non-white woman w in public with the respect only due to a white person, a white woman. Um, so, so anti-miscegenation law was not um, was very much not only a law about um, that that worked to advance white supremacy, um, but it did so in a very in in a way that located patriarchal power um, squarely within white men or among white men. Mm. Uh, I believe the author you were referencing, uh, Victoria Bynum, uh, her book, Unruly yeah. Women, The Politics of Social and Sexual Control in the Old South, 1992. Um, I had listeners, several listeners who commented on that passage. Uh, before I read their comment, I'll read one more section because I think, unless I misread, this is a pretty important point. It pops up regularly in your, your book, which you just laid out about uh, white women being subject to white male patriarchy. This is just page over, page 41. Uh, just reading one paragraph, meanings assigned to white skin were not the same for all people. Rather, the meanings assigned within the four corners, i.e. written words of the document of the law, as well as through enforcement practices, took a gendered form. Similarly, the privileges offered to whites were not guaranteed absolutely, but depended both upon the maintenance of a group or groups understood as other uh, 
e.g. Negroes, mulattoes, Indians, and required that individual people, people rendered white remain within the gendered confines of what it meant to be a white woman or a white man to the extent that anti-miscegenation law worked to embed white supremacy in law, it did so in part through an exchange in white women's bodies. Uh, I will share the listener's comments first and then I'll give my thoughts on this. Uh, one of our uh, female listeners, Brucey Fine, she said uh, her first comment, I'll read them in the order I got them. Her first comment when I read that section, uh, marketing of the white woman as innocent of practicing, maintaining and benefiting from racism, white supremacy uh, as a victim of the white man and friend to her victim of racism, white supremacy. Uh, Bruce Fine, she feels the white woman is the other stakeholder in the system of white supremacy. Her other comment, she said instruments, because you use the term instruments in the white woman's body, it's an instrument of racism, white supremacy. She said she is not an instrument, meaning the white woman. The white woman, again, is the other stakeholder. Uh, when I read this, and this is a pattern that I've noted, and I feel like this is very dangerous because uh, I hear this frequently when people bring up patriarchy as if white women are not equally dangerous in the system of white supremacy. It almost sounds as if white women in the 1600s, 1700s, antebellum, antebellum America were not practicing racism, white supremacy, that white men just had everyone in their vile grip, be they white woman, non-white male, non-white female, and I could not disagree more strongly. Certainly, you have a pecking order amongst white people. Absolutely. All white people do not have the same amount of power, but you would not have individuals classified as white if you did not have a willing racist participant in the white woman. Now, with the anti-miscegenation laws specifically, I look at this as business. Some of this just comes down to pure biology. It is my understanding. I mean, everyone stop even before I proceed. Keep in mind, we're not talking about uh, 21st century medical advances. We're talking about 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, where it was routine for someone to die in childbirth. If we are talking about the business of maintaining white supremacy racism as a system, at a time where, as you already pointed out, you didn't have as many people, life expectancy was a lot lower, childbirth is a lot more risky, you cannot have white women just running around willy-nilly having sexual intercourse with any slave, buck, negro that they choose. That cannot work. If they get pregnant, they could potentially die. And as you said, there was a gender imbalance with regards to population. You had a lot more white males in the colonies during this time period than you did white females. You point that out. That is also hugely important. If that is true, you have it in your book. So if that's true and the biology part that I'm talking about, you still have, it could be a risk with regards to pregnancy. The mom could die. Business decision. Hey, white men, you're not going to die. You can go out, rape as many black females as you want to. And in fact, let's even encourage that because if you produce a child, according to the laws that you have in your book, they're going to be slaves. I'm increasing our profit. This is good for the business of racism, white supremacy for white males, Thomas Jefferson at all to go out and have as much sex with as many slaves, niggers as they please. You cannot extend that same freedom to white women that could severely damage the business if they're going out. Plus that whole nine month period, if she should get pregnant, 
if she has sexual intercourse with a non-white male, she cannot produce white children. I think it has been established, unless I'm incorrect, white people have said only the white woman can consistently, reliably produce children who will be labeled as white if they're having sexual intercourse with another white person. I do not read this at all as, oh man, the poor white woman is victim of white man. I view this, this is business. This is what we have got to do to make sure that we are successful as a white army to dominate these non-white people. And that white woman was every bit a racist and terrorist on the plantation to black people, non-white people, period. I'm even reminded of Valerie Jackson, her book Property, which is fiction. Make sure I'm acknowledging is fiction. But she's and this is a white woman who wrote this, Valerie Jackson. She said the whole point to point out the role of white women on the plantation and not giving them a pass. So we boohoo and think of them as Scarlett O'Hara gone with the wind. No, they are equal partners, maybe less powerful, but every bit as complicit in the system of racism, even 1700s, 1800s, antebellum South. Uh, your response? Well, in no way, by, by referencing the um, gender components of um, anti-miscegenation law, by no means, by mentioning that, did I in any way mean to imply, uh, I certainly don't say in the book that white women are any less indicted by white supremacy in this country, um, because that's simply, you know, not true. Um, but but the way in which the law worked um, and, and impacted um, white women was just was simply different. But but to 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 conclude that that means I'm saying that white women are less culpable to the institution of white supremacy is I, I didn't I didn't say that at all, and and it is not intended by any means. I'm I'm, I'm seriously I'm I'm merely capturing some of the nuances of of the law itself and how it was practiced. Mm. Uh, that is not what I got, particularly when that word white male patriarchy is used. That is not what it suggests to me. To me, it suggests that this is a white man thing and that white females, because you make a point. Uh, this comes up over and over in your book where you talk about how white females, uh, they can't own property and all of their benefits I'm, come from having with a, a white man. Uh, you put that in the book that they can't have property well, in their name. But that that was the law. I'm I'm simply referencing law, Gus. This isn't a matter of interpretation. <laughs> it, no, it, no problem. It, it it I'm I it, in those passages. I'm talking about law, the law of coverture, um, and so the fact of the matter was that law had these restrictions along gender lines. Now, did that mean that white women who in, um, you know, the confines of, of, of a shared location or property or plantation couldn't treat um, non-white people in deplorable ways, and, and they very likely may have? That They very, what? Sure. <laughs> they very sure. likely may have. Well, you know, no, no, but Gus, you, you can't conflate the historical evidence of the ways in which the masses of 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 Europeans, because they weren't white people yet, um, the the ways in which the masses of Europeans interacted with the smaller numbers of persons of African descent and native tribes, 
the, what, what we tend to do and what I, I, I'm concerned is happening right now in this conversation is that you're imposing a post-white people uh, the, after the invention of white people and after the laws that allowed white people to be invented in the first place, um, that dramatically altered colonial society in ways that we are all too familiar with. But that wasn't always the case. At least the evidence. I mean, I wasn't around. All I can do is turn to historical evidence. Um, the, the evidence doesn't support um, that, that that sort of animosity was there. It, it, it quickly um, grew after this invention of a group of humanity called whites, and that was done through the imposition of, of laws, um, and those are referenced in, largely in Chapter 2. Okay. With the point that you just said, and I want to make note that that totally deviates from what I was talking about with regards to white women. Uh, that is important. And I have seen where white people will do this, will dislocate the conversation to talk about something else. And I think that could be a conscious act of racism, white supremacy, but it's no problem. I will take care of both of those. The point that you raised that deviated all of that that you're talking about, about the creation of a white race. These people weren't labeled as white. All of that is 17th century stuff. From 1700 forward, everything is there. The animosity, the disregard for black people, it's all there. White race Absolutely. is there. The system is rolling. So what you're talking about is almost totally irrelevant to what I said. But that's, hang we're on, talking I'm not done. About, I'm not done. I'm not done. I you're talking, talking about on, two chapters done. of I'm my book, Gus. I'm not done. And in I'm those two chapters, I'm only in the Can 17th finish? century. Can you can't Can finish? switch centuries Can finish? in reference to Can my I book. Can I finish my point? Can I finish my point? You're talking about white women with these anti-miscegenation law. Now, you're using the term white to reference these individuals, okay? I'm just reading from what you got in your book. You're using the term white. So if you feel it's correct to reference them as white, I think it's accurate as well. And my point was these white women are every bit as culpable in the practice of racism, white supremacy. You do not have individuals as white, whether you want to put that in quotes or not, there's no way you can have white males or white females for generations if you don't have white women who are willing participants in the system of white supremacy. It is not possible. Now, you I, can I'm not that arguing way. that. Okay, what I'm saying I, is, hang on, because I'm not done yet. Uh, what I am saying in your book. To me, the terms that you use saying white male patriarchy, and I can even read another passage, just the terms that you use to me suggest that the white woman is not culpable, that the white woman, too, was subject to white men, that we're talking about white male patriarchy. And I don't agree, even though I see, yes, of course, you have different power between groups of white people. As I said, you have a pecking order, but these folks are all a part of the same white army dedicated to terrorizing non-white people. I'll just read your book and we'll see. This is on I, page 41. I you don't write, disagree with that. I will let you finish. I, I just want to read this. And like I said, listeners, you can know use what? your comments. I can't even remember. You talk so hang, long, I can't even remember where on, you start. Going. Hang on. <laughs> I'm sorry if your memory is failing. I will read yeah, and I'll allow is. you to respond. This is on page 41. Post-Bacon's Rebellion Laws Reveal Gender class and race. Now, I would even say right there, the fact that gender is mentioned first. This is not listed alphabetically. Why would gender be the first thing that we talk about? Moving forward, you say post-Bacon's rebellion, laws reveal gender, 
class and race as interconnected systems that support, constitute, and reconstitute each other. Intersectionality at work, where privilege was created for whites through anti-miscegenation law, it was done in part through the reinforcement of a gender hierarchy wherein women were rendered inferior to men. Through this law and its enforcement patterns, privilege on the basis of an emerging race called white is built in and through privilege and authority established on the basis of gender. Where authority over women was secured in marriage through common law, it was denied to a tribal man or a man of African descent relative to a white woman. Here, racial constructs are enforced through a granting or denial of the prevailing gender hierarchy. The fact that laboring Europeans and Africans in Virginia marry each other with acceptance prior to the post-Bacon's rebellion period and the fact that anti-miscegenation law subsequently thrived in excess of 300 years helps reflect the dramatic social change that was brought about in the decades following the rebellion. What could bring about such a radical transformation among the laboring classes? Is it, is it to a consideration of this change that we will now turn? I will stop there. If you would like to respond, I will hush. I'm studying law, and the, I would be inept in my articulation of anti-miscegenation law without capturing the law of coverture and indicating those differences, just like I would be inept if I talked about black people um, and only referenced the experience in law of black men. And capturing that difference that's reflected in the laws that prevailed at that time does not in any way mean that because those laws created power differentials in no way says that or means that those white people on the lower end of the power rungs didn't fully participate in institutionalized once white supremacy through the enactments that began to build after Bacon's Rebellion. Right on. Again, the book, Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today, Jacqueline Battalore, PhD, professor at St. Xavier University. Uh, we do have callers. I will get the folks who have questions. The number again is 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Uh, I will remind listeners I am a victim of racism. It is very possible that I could have misinterpreted uh, Professor Battalore's work. Uh, I would just say that I s consistently see this pattern where white women are moved away from being practitioners of racism, white supremacy. You said that that was not your intention. I didn't get that from reading the book, but I could be wrong. But I do see a pattern consistently where white women are not thought of as practitioners of racism, white supremacy. They are thought of 
as victims, that they, too, are suffering from the white man. I don't agree. And I think that is a very dangerous concept. As I've said consistently, do not sleep on or with white women. Super dangerous. The Trayvon Martin trial, white women's fingerprints all over it. If you need a current day example, uh, the people that dialed in, I think he's from your neck of the woods. Uh, Shadow, your line should be open. Did you have a question for Professor Jacqueline Battalore? Hello, Gus, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, Professor Bello, I had a question about uh, the Irish. You said that they were not enslaved. I've gotten into discussions with Irish people about them uh, being enslaved, and they said that they were. I just wanted to know, you said that the, I wanted to, just two questions. Were they enslaved? And if they weren't, why wasn't it successful as far as you know? Well, I, you know, I'm not a specialist on the on the Irish experience. I in my book I talk about um, the Irish um, upon their arrival, especially the Irish Catholics um, who were um, running away from a potato famine. Um, but the the British were did not have great success enslaving the Irish, um, and. You know, according to the British, it's because the Irish were were too untamable. I mean, that tends to be how the British described that um, failure. And then the British came in and practiced, you know, burn and torture um, um, to just scav. If if they couldn't enslave the Irish, the the um, approach was then at least you know we're going to wipe out their their resources and take their land. Okay. Uh, thank you, Dan. Hello? Yes, sir, we can hear you. Uh, oh, okay. Right on. Uh, Lashes, did you have a question for Professor Battalore? Uh Lashes, you there? I'm not hearing. Uh, did you mute your line? Not sure if you may be muted or... Okay. I will check back again. Uh, Lashes, if you did have a question, not hearing you, maybe you can hang up and dial again or, you know, check to see if you muted your line or what have you. I'll check back uh, once we get our next caller. Uh, S-Dot, did you have a question for Professor Battalore? Your line should be open. S-Dot, are you with us? Hmm, very interesting. <laughs> Hearing S dot either. Uh I will double check. Uh All right. oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I can hear you. Oh, he might have needed I didn't I didn't hear if you if you did you need a second, S dot? Is that what it was? I, I know you got parenting duties. Did you need Yeah, save the screen and come back to me. Oh, okay, okay. All right. Uh I guess two people are having audio issues. Yes, ma'am. That's okay. Guess if we um, if we don't have a question, um, a person ready to present a question, may I um, provide some more information as to why um, I felt a a um, consideration of patriarchy was so important for this work? Yes, ma'am. Well, it, it was important because patriarchy was a significant um, form of power um, for men. Um, for for men for the masses of men actually right because for rich men power can, could come through their financial resources or land ownership um, but for the masses of men 
um, their masculinity and their power as men came through patriarchy. Um, and those were established, again, through the laws of coverture, which gave men literally this significant bag of legal rights and privileges over women and over children. Um, patriarchy is critical because it reveals patriarchy in the hands of white men as a tool um, in both the creation and support of white supremacy. Secondarily, it's important because this history reveals through the laws that passed after Bacon's Rebellion the ways in which black men, that their power, um, their very few had the finances and resources to exercise authority in the financial way. Um, and the laws, if you review them, work to strip them of any patriarchal power. Um, and so um, patriarchy as, as a source, as a resource to deny um, masculinity and male power, um, I think it is critical to the story of the invention of, of white people and institutionalized white supremacy. Okay. Um, I will... I will table my response to see if our, our listeners, if they have any questions, so I don't allow them to miss out. Uh, let's see. We'll double check again. Uh, Estat uh, or Lashes, did you all have a question? Hi, good evening to you and your guests. Um, I have a quick question. In your research and conducting or uh, writing this book, did most of the laws that were created around race centered in the state of Virginia? Virginia and Maryland took precedence. Uh, based on your research within the law specifically, do you know why that is? Um, sure. Um, because their economy was one that depended, uh, they, they both grew um, tobacco. It was the backbone of their economy. Tobacco required, um, tobacco growing requires tremendous human labor. Um, and so their their the economy, the foundation of the economy in both of those colonies required significant numbers of um, laborers, and the economic success of the power brokers in those colonies um, sought, you know, the, the least paid laborers as possible, and eventually won out by having non-paid laborers in the form of African slaves. Okay. And were those two states also the state that was able to accumulate most, um, I can't think, this is a bad term, but most votes as far as um, like congressional seats or anything in that time? Like, well, at this the point, they're calling. You know I'm what sorry. I'm trying to, sorry. <laughs> they're like the whole three fourth clause in reference to. Well, I, the period I'm talking about, um, it, at least in reference to the invention of white period, uh, uh, the invention of white people and when that came about, it, mm -hmm. is pre-formation of the United States. So these are, these are British colonies at the time. Mainly from the Anglo-Saxon perspective, way of doing things, correct? Um, yes. And my second question would be, prior to you coming to the United States as a teen, what, as an adult now, what is the difference between the practice of racism, white supremacy in Europe and that of inside the United States? 
and what is the meaning of whiteness, respectively, in both continents? I, I don't have an answer to that question. What I can tell you is I, I lived in Europe until I was 10 years old. Um, and so I, I it, while living in Europe, I lived in Antwerp, Belgium, I had never seen um, a very dark-skinned person. Uh, the, the sort of group that I remember hearing about as sort of the other um, as a child living in Belgium was um, gypsies. So they were, they were sort of the targeted group um, and, and were um, you know, marginalized and, and um, stereotyped in, in very negative ways. So, so I, I, I didn't get... Um, I couldn't watch television because I didn't speak Flemish. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So I was very protected from the sort of racial um, information that I might have learned while living in Belgium. So, so I have to say that. I, I didn't get what, where I did learn a tremendous amount about race was when we spent summers in, in the Chicagoland area. Um, and those are those are my most vivid experiences of um, learning these categories and and you know what they were supposed to mean, uh, you know who to be cautious of, who to trust, those sorts of messages. And I can't speak about a contemporary. I, I that's uh, that's not an area of study for me. I'm, I'd be very curious to know the answer myself. Okay. And my last comment would be um, a friend of mine is also listening to the show. And when you were um, explaining the true definition of miscegenation law, her response was as follows. But if non-white people were legally barred from marrying white people, it's clear that whites are really the only race. Because even white people didn't see two non-whites marrying as interracial couples. So would you agree with her response that in the creation of the pre-creation of whiteness in the United States, it was what we call the people we call white people today who are really the race of people since they do have an agenda or a, a purpose of some sort? You know what I mean? Um, I'm afraid I didn't follow that. What part you did not follow? Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure what's being said. I, in, in my reference to uh, it, to my explanation of anti-miscegenation um, was that anti-miscegenation laws only prohibited white people from marrying non-white people, but it didn't. Those laws were not concerned with non-white groups marrying across racial, so-called racial lines. Correct. So my friend think my friend thinks that then if non-white people were legally barred from marrying white people, these yeah. are the classification we use today. It's clear that whites during that time are really the only race. Do you understand? How, no. uh, well, look here. Here's what gets so um, we. And, and I address this at the beginning of the book. Like, one of the frustrations is, like, I'm trying to show that, that these racial categories that we have are a fiction. They're, they are a, they're not biologically bound. They are real, of course, in that they've been given tremendous, tremendous social meaning, right? We all live with that. We just saw it played out in the Trayvon Martin case um, um, and the, the Zimmerman trial, 
Um, so, so they're they're real because we've given them this meaning, and it's and it's so deeply embedded. It's it's hard to imagine that realness, if you will, you know, not being with us for a long time. But race itself is a fiction, and and the the concept of race did not even emerge um, uh, until much later. Uh, so it it's so hard to. Um, I mean, I even say, like, even even in my book, I'm I'm focusing on this group of people called white people who who eventually became conceived as this race, um, and and you know, race the concept itself is derived from the inbreeding of animals, um, and and it was never applied to human beings until these, these ideas about differentiation among people, you know, worked to the advantage. Um, uh, of white people. Um, so this gets complicated because we use this terminology that um, uh, of race um, that, you know, isn't even, what wasn't relevant at the time. So if I understand you correctly, you said that race back then was only used in reference to animals and producing numbers of animals like that, cattle? That is correct. Really? Yes. Oh, what year? What in in your research? What year was that terminology used, and well, where can well, I find it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's, you know, just like I think, you know, the point Gus was trying to make about the whole, you know, I I really wanted to get to the moment where I saw this reference to this group of people as whites being used. You know, I wanted to get to that, and and Gus, uh, you know, was has made the point that look. There, there was already stuff, seeds in the ground that allowed that to happen, and, and I hope that I captured that in the book as well, because of course that is true. The same is true of, of this concept of race. Um, there, there's no one moment that, that's so distinct, um, but, but it was a process, and this invention of this group of people called white people was a part of a, a significant seed, if you will, um, that allowed for this conception of human beings into these separate racial groups. And you really see this, the, this idea of race getting um, solidified and, and folks running off with it, especially, you know, anthropologists and sociologists. I think anthropology um, takes, takes the blame, if you will, um, for much of it in the 19th century. In correlation to your point, I would think of, like, how society referenced dog, meaning a half mutt, a pure breed of this breed, et cetera, et cetera. So, so this is what's coming to my mind. And when you say race was used in reference to animals and the production of them, did they actually use the term race as we do today, the physical word R-A-C-E, or was there another term but meant what we use race today? Um, I don't, to my knowledge, there's not another term, um, and race refer at that time referred to a a um, like a breeding line, mm. literally. Hmm. It wasn't an acronym for anything. It was just the word no, race. Not. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the question. Uh, S. Dunn, uh, if you want to get your question in, uh, <laughs> just 
try quickly. Uh, I've definitely had to get this. This is in the afterword. This is another one that I've heard from several other white people. And I would go back to that question uh, that was asked kind of at the top of the broadcast about are white people going to voluntarily stop practicing racism, white supremacy? Uh, you said your general answer would be no. You think there are small pockets, small pockets of those folks of which you hope that you are one, uh, but generally no. And we have asked a lot of white people, and I, I can only think of one. I think there were maybe two, but one of them was uh, J. Love Calderon, racist suspect, white woman, uh, who said, oh, no, I think there's lots of evidence that white people are uh, going to voluntarily stop doing this. And, you know, she said what she said on the program. Uh, but this is on 97 where you uh, this is the afterward where you ask that very question. Why would whites work to dismantle whiteness? And that's another one. I just I hate that term. It's not accurate. We're not getting to the nitty gritty. Why would whites work to dismantle racism, white supremacy? I think that would be most accurate. But anyway, uh, people often fair enough. Or fair too. People often ask me why white people would challenge. Can I, I'm just going to replace whiteness in here because I think it, it would be accurate. That's fine. You okay. can use white supremacy. It works perfectly. Thank you. People often ask me why white people would challenge white supremacy since it confers so many unearned advantages to those classified as or merely presumed to be white. There are a number of motivating factors. First, when white people become aware of their unearned advantages and understand that such advantages only exist by virtue of unearned harms meted out to those raced other than white, most are unnerved by the injustice. Additionally, as whites realize that the preferential meanings that have been assigned to the status white only exist by virtue of the degradation of those rendered not white or contingent white for no other reason than their racial status. They are interested in correcting this social inequality. Now I will stop right there. I uh, just want to read that last sentence one more time. Additionally, as whites realize that their preferential meanings, me, additionally, as whites realize that the preferential meanings that have been assigned to the status white only exist by virtue of the degradation of those rendered not white or contingent white for no other reason than their racial status, they are interested in correcting this social equality. Uh, have you seen any evidence that this is true? Well, I have. I mean, I, I have in institutional settings. Um, I have seen teachers um, at at, you know, various grade levels of K through 12 in particular and, and at the um, higher education level um, and, and seen actions taken um, as a result. Do I know, I mean, do I see people in their homes, in their daily lives and have that sort of monitoring evidence? No. What I do know um, it, is that um, and maybe, Gus, um, this was my hesitation to answer your, your sort of very, you know, are white people, is there evidence of, of white people um, relinquishing white supremacy? Um, and maybe, maybe it's my naivete, but, you know, why, why bother writing this book if, if I don't have some faith in, in even white humanity um, and the possibility of 
transformation. I mean, otherwise, it, like, why waste my time? Like, I, I do have some belief. I have seen some evidence of, of people sometimes um, who seem to, to take this information and, and um, seem to be changed. Do, am I there to monitor um, how long that lasts or, or how that transpires in their lives? No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I have faith in that possibility. Um, I believe that my experience um, as a young person with Ricky and, and the environment around me, um, you know, I mean, I guess I could have left it um, really hateful, but, but I, I haven't left that way. I, I have, um, that wasn't, that wasn't all of my experience. I also um, saw people um, and have experienced inc- people, including white people, who who are doing, at least by my view, seem to be working very hard um, to to be just. Hmm. I want to I want to respond, but I want to read a passage from your book. This is on one one hundred three. Uh, same. Uh, all from the afterward, uh, 103, you write the harm from white supremacy. And you uh, in this section of the book, you have a lot of uh, different photographs of lynchings. One of them in Florida, we've been talking about that a lot. Uh, you have a lot of uh, pictures of lynchings with regards to, you know, this is, this is the grisly history. This is what racism, white supremacy produces. Uh, so you write the harm from white supremacy that these lynching images capture is not only the blatant murderous harm to those communities who were the target of white lynch mobs. These images reveal a defective humanity within those communities that enacted and participated in lynching and within a nation that condoned lynching by failing to prosecute those who murdered. The history of lynchings reveals harm and the effects of brutal violence at multiple levels. It dramatically exposes the harm to black Americans whose bodies were tortured, hung, burned, and dismembered. Just as there is general recognition recognition that something was wrong with those German soldiers who participated in the slaughter of other human beings labeled Jews, gays, or disabled people, there is evidence of a similar defect in the white people who participated in and tolerated lynchings in the United States. Uh, I, yeah, I'll stop right there. I was going to read some more, but you go on to talk about how this is this is the why with regards to racism, white supremacy being replaced with justice. This is why white people should want to do it to regain their humanity. And I've heard this before from white people. Uh, Timothy Wise, admitted racist, uh, who's been on the program many times. This is one of his big pushes that he's doing this work. Uh, not for non-white people, but he's doing it for white people to help. Re- he almost said it verbatim, uh, which he wrote out in the book. And I just I do not believe a single white person who says that uh, you, Timothy, any of them. I agree with your statement that white people, there is something defective about white people where they have a pathology, a proclivity for practicing white terrorism worldwide. But I don't see any evidence, not this book not the White Privilege Conference, not Timothy Wise, not Peggy McIntosh, not Noel Ignatiev, not a single iota of evidence that white people are sincerely interested in dismantling this system and treating 
everyone, non-white people, especially black people, in a just manner. White people could do this in like 24 hours if they were really serious. We're tired of this. We're not going to have. We're tired of the Trayvon Martins. We're tired of Questlove and all these people having to complain about being humiliated and shot by enforcement officers. This could stop real quick. It's getting worse. I've even hearing white people, growing numbers of white people. We had a guest on the program this week who are saying it's getting worse. Racism is becoming more acceptable to just be blatantly trifling and tackily racist. I see more and more evidence of that every day. And with regards to why would you write this book if you have no faith that white people are not going to change, in my view, any white person who says, you know what, Gus, I hear you. It makes total sense and I can understand how any black person, given our history, would be very suspicious of a white person and would probably not believe us. I feel you. However, I want to be honest and I want to get rid of this system. They could just start by telling the truth about white people. Just start by saying, you know what? These white folks are not interested in ending racism. Let's just get that up front and center. When I was at the White Privilege Conference in 2010 with you, that was one of my main questions that I asked in a workshop. Before we hop into all of this, you're going, you're going in and out, but I think I have the gist. Okay, I, I will. I hope I'm not being lost for listeners because this is important. Uh, when I was at the White Privilege Conference, I was in a workshop and I asked, "Are white people going to voluntarily stop practicing racism?" And many of the white people in the yes, room. Yes, you're you're out. I can't hear you at all anymore. Okay, I will. Hang up and dial back in, see if that clears my line out. Hang on one second, listen. Can you hear me? Um, this is Jacqueline Bettelora. I can hear you. Oh, um, I was a caller who called in with a question. I'd love to hear your question. Okay, uh, maybe he had a technical difficulty, but I'd ask my question anyway. My question is, I know that it was mentioned that you um, included a number of images of lynchings in your work. Is that true? That is true. Okay. With that being said, and I and I have um, heard a number of other guests who uh, classify themselves as white and say that they are making an effort to work against the system of racism, white supremacy. And that being said, and considering, oh, I lost you. I'm afraid I can't hear you. Uh, am I being heard? I can now hear you, Gus. I lost my listener who was making a comment in light of the um, lynching images. But oh, okay, but I, I heard. Lots of tech interference at that point. That is, hmm. I heard S. Dot. I'm hoping he'll dial back in. It looks like he got uh, disconnected. I hope he'll get in because I wanted to hear his question about the lynchings. Um, yeah. Okay, he's what, back with us. What, all right. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, all right, S. Dot, your line is open. S. Dot, you with us, sir? Uh, uh, yes, sir. I'm sorry. All right. My, my call dropped. Um, so the guests, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay. I don't know if you heard what I was saying, but what I was saying was that considering the considerable resources of those who classify themselves as white 
and many of which who have put out similar work like yours um, depicting images of individuals who participated in so-called lynchings and so forth. Uh, if there is a sincere effort on the parts of those individuals and yourself, why do you think that there hasn't been any individual to date that has made an effort to go back and unearth the identities of those individuals in those photos, the uh, identities of their surviving family members, and to really document what impact uh, those lynchings have had on those particularly particular individuals and or their surviving family members. I haven't seen any work that goes into looking at the mindset of those individuals who committed those. Hello? Uh, I can. He's still with us? Looks like he's still with us. It, it, was, he, was he done? Should I respond? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, it looks like he got disconnected. Um, okay. Lots of tech issues. I think I got the gist of the question about why I haven't. Yeah, been... I, I think I did too. Well, you know, that is a, that there, my God, there is so much that needs to be examined and explored, um, from the, the harms of, of white supremacy and enactments of violence, um, I mean, we. Uh, I talk in the book a little bit about the Texas Rangers, and and uh, I mean, the year before the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, when when our country doubled in size, sixty percent of Mexicans who owned land that now became the United States, sixty percent of them owned land, and within a decade, less than thirty percent of them did, and that's one of the concrete pieces of evidence we have. Um, that's the result of, of you know, theft by um, white lawyers, um, um, a, a, a corrupt um, legal system that exploited the the way in which um, title to land was held from Mexico versus what is recognized in law in the United States, and then lynchings of persons, uh, Mexican persons. Um, and and that re- we have so much research um, to be done around the issue uh, uh, t- that gets into the the effects, the historical effects on communities of these sorts of harms. Um, and you know that's that's partly why I really highlighted the loss of patriarchal power, because, Gus, you still wanted to comment on that, so I wanted to reopen that for you. Um, one of the reasons I, I thought it was so important to capture that loss of patriarchal power in black families um, was because, like, I remember, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s, there was this whole, you know, what's wrong with black men and, you know, what is black mas- masculinity and, um, you know, there are very, very real reasons that are, we are shaped the way we are shaped today, and it's because of our past, and our laws um, are, have played a, a big role, not an exclusive role, but a big role um, in shaping them.
Did that answer your question, Esdot? I thought he was back with us. Should be able to hear us. Did that answer your question? It's less of an answer than a recognition, I think. Okay. Uh, his line should be open if, uh, I don't know if he muted or if he heard the response, but your line is open if, if you uh, want to respond. If you if you felt like that was adequate, that's cool, too. Um, I will respond. Hey, just, just to let you know, I, I only have about five more minutes. I have a little girl who's been waiting for me to go to be put to bed right on we will see if we can knock it out in five minutes um i want to make sure i, I tie up what i was saying when i got uh disrupted with regards to the why i would say number one you said that it might be your naivete i would say for all non-white people victims of racism there should never be an assumption of naivete on the part of white people ever ever ever, ever. I wouldn't care if it was a 10-year-old white person or a 110-year-old white person. White people are not ignorant about racism. Uh, suspicion should be there. With regards to why would you write such a book like this, if white people are not going to stop practicing racism, it could be an act of racism, white supremacy, to write a book that does not give an accurate understanding of white people, racism, white supremacy, and how it operates. I have concluded that that is one of the refined ways that white people practice racism by controlling the dialogue on conversations around racism, white supremacy, how people think about racism, white supremacy, how they understand the system and what should be done to undermine it. As long as Timothy Wise and Dr. Peggy McIntosh, as long as these white people are able to control that conversation, this system can go on and on and on because the non-white people, if they're reading this material, they're not getting an accurate understanding of white people and in my view, it's really dangerous because they think, hey, Timothy and Jacqueline Battalora and Dr. Peggy McIntosh, there are some white people who are really interested in ending this system. And as I've said, that is not true at all. I've seen no evidence from any of these white folks, yourself included. With the patriarchy uh, point, uh, I was going to read, but since we only have five minutes left and I want to make sure you have a chance to respond, I would just say with regards to patriarchy, and you said it was important because this was how white men asserted their masculinity uh, through dominating females, I would say in my observation. I tried to say the law create that was created a resource, and it was imposed by law called coverture. Okay. At any rate, what I would say, I think the laws and every other aspect of white culture, white men, and I think this has been true for centuries, the primary means of them flexing their masculinity is through practicing racism, white supremacy, whether that be the lynching images that you have in your book, the whole sad spectacle that we got with Trayvon Martin and the trial, which I would say would be white women flexing their womanhood since you had a white judge, white prosecutor, mostly white jury. Uh, I would say white women also get to flex their femininity through practicing racism, white supremacy. I'm even reminded of an admitted racist that I spoke with. She said that she felt stronger, a stronger sense of femininity and womanhood, knowing that black males specifically found her sexually attractive. She said if that was taken away, she would feel less powerful as a white woman, less powerful as a racist because she admitted to being a racist. So I don't agree. Uh, even though those laws are there, I totally agree. Yes, there's a power differential. Yes, yes, yes. White men mistreat white women. 
White men, excuse me, white people mistreat white people, other white people. Yes, long history of that. However, there is a total understanding amongst the global white army. We are supposed to be terrorizing and dominating non-white people. Nothing is supposed to disrupt that. Not our little squabbles and feuds with each other or anything else. Primary objective, dominate everyone that we say is not white and white males, in my view, their masculinity is contingent and white women, their femininity is contingent upon that system remaining in place. Uh, and I'll give you the last word. I just want to read this quote from your book really quick, because I think this goes sure. to what I was saying earlier about how I think you do suggest that white women are somehow not as complicit in white supremacy. This is 66 and 67. Uh, you write that white ideology was built from the idea of those deemed sufficiently like the British and has shaped U.S. history in profound ways. It has constructed American as consistent with white. It has worked to commodify women's bodies in racialized ways. White women as those who must preserve white purity and non-white women as sex slaves, laborers at the bottom rung of the pay scale and defective women by exclusion from idealized gender roles. Whiteness has, cent has centered patriarchal authority and power in the hands of white men. And you can have the final word. Um, I think the law is, is indisputable um, with regard to those claims. Um, but I think the most important point that I'd like to make and, and hope to end with is that um, I just hope you're wrong, Gus, that um, <laughs> white people have to begin somewhere. Um, and I believe that there are people. Um, I believe I have witnessed. Uh, I mean, the one thing we have to be careful of is, is anybody claiming, you, me, anybody else, claiming to know the version of events, the, the only perspective. Gus doesn't hold it. Jackie Batalora doesn't hold it. Tim Wise doesn't hold it. Nobody holds it. It's, it's through a collection of, of perceptions um, that that we start to get a better view of what's going on. Um, and I certainly hope and, and, and have faith in, uh, I, I believe in a sense of humanity um, that can be restored. And I, I believe that I am witnessing white people um, who are entering into a struggle, a struggle that wasn't possible for my parents' generations because they didn't, there, there was you know, zero critique that they were um, introduced to um, in any formal way, that's for sure, um, and that in my generation there is at least um, a critique that's more widely available through the works of, um, you know, reading W.E.B. Du Bois in school, Peggy McIntosh, Tim Wise, um, and hopefully hopefully, my book, Birth of a White Nation, contributes to those um, and I believe that they are the seed, just like most of this history has shown, that you have to plant seeds, and it takes a long time to germinate, and, and hopefully they will um, be realized in that larger movement of white people away from white supremacy. Right on. The book again, Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today. Uh, just came out not that long ago. Uh, you can check it out. Uh, interesting material. Uh, thank you for making a second visit to the program. 
thoroughly enjoyed the dialogue. Appreciate you standing up to some criticism. I always appreciate when white people don't have a problem when non-white people, victims of racism, come at them with suspicion as we should. Uh, appreciate you sharing a bit of your Thursday evening with us and uh, we'll look forward to having further dialogue. I will keep track of your uh, your works and I hope I'm wrong too. I hope there are some white people that are out there that are serious and they're going to get cracking to solve this problem. All the best to you, Gus. Thanks for your work. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Context of white supremacy. We will take a quick commercial break and be back. If anyone had any thoughts, questions they wanted to get in uh, about what they heard, we will make time for that as well. Uh, I don't think I will even include any sound clips. I'll make sure folks have time to get in their their final say. And uh, yeah, we will be back. Context of white supremacy, quick commercial. Don't leave. If you told black people that white people were committing biological genocide against us and that by the year 2000, whatever, there would be no more black people, you would get one reaction. But you're saying that we're being threatened with cultural and psychological extinction. How do you get African people to see the urgency of the situation? Um, I don't know, frankly, if you can. I think that we have to focus on young people, young African people who have not been so um, um, conditioned um, with a way of, of thinking uh, that supports European imperialism, European power, that they still have the ability to use their, their, their intuition, their spirituality, their Africanness to create, mm -hmm. to think beyond the limitations that have been given to them in European academies. I think most of, of us as, um, as adults, um, as elders, um, have been so conditioned that we're, we're afraid to move beyond the parameters that have been defined by our enemies in our thinking so that our, um, our, our vision is limited. Um, and so we are really not the people who should be um, conceptualizing the, the, uh, 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 the plans, you know, the movements, what we should be building. But uh, I focus on the younger people who hopefully are still more in touch with what is natural to African people. And if I can affirm that in them, they will see the urgency. I find that in my teaching. I find that in, in teaching young people that once they are affirmed and, and introduced in a conscious way to the African worldview, it becomes crystal clear to them, and they see in an urgency in us as African people building for self, as opposed to imitating forms which have been put in place to make sure that we continue to be oppressed. Context of white supremacy. Again, we'll be back. The book club tomorrow, The Warmth of Other Sons, Isabel Wilkerson, the black female, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 
5 p.m. Pacific, fourth installment should be constructive. Looking forward to it. Uh, I will hit the phone lines. Uh, the only thing that I will say briefly, I should have said this at the beginning of the program. This also fits a pattern that I have observed when you are a less confused victim of racism and you first encounter a white person who is willing to give up, you know, accurate information to be truthful about the system of racism, white supremacy. It's been my experience that white people, they generally are very surprised to meet a non-white person that is slightly less confused. They generally don't bump into that many of them. So the first time they are many of them, they're very caught off guard uh, by that. By the second time you meet them, they have recovered and the constructive information tends to go way down. It tends to be a lot more resistance. They are a lot more combative. You get a lot more buckets of words where they're not being clear. This is a pattern that I have observed consistently with speaking to white people. And I mean, all I can say is the first time that I met her at the white privilege conference, uh, she admitted to being a racist. She gave up a lot of clear accurate information lots of it tons of it i listened to her workshop then she came on the program when i read her book man it was like night and day i was i mean it was just like i cannot believe how ridiculous uh this information is this is not constructive i wouldn't even recommend uh that non-white people even if you could get it for free i wouldn't recommend uh reading this book uh it was just uh it was a dramatic drop off from what she shared originally uh, with regards to just being clear, accurate to the point about what it means to be a white person and their long time. I mean, she talked about how white people make memorials to acts of terrorism against non-white people. When you have a group of people, if you want to think about the Redskins, the Texas Rangers, a whole myriad of images and concepts. I did the report I just mentioned about in Tennessee where they don't want to take down the poster or the picture of Robert E. Lee. That right there shows that white people have no interest in discontinuing the practice of white supremacy racism. Uh, I can only say I thought that that was about how things can, were going to go and I was prepared for it to be a contentious battle. Uh, of a discussion that was totally fine with me. And uh, she did admit to being a racist. So she's doing what she's supposed to do to protect her white racist interests. In my view, I could be incorrect. Uh, we should have shadow lashes and the caller. I think that's our caller in Florida. Uh, your three lines should be open. Wow, Gus, I, I was just talking about that uh, subject matter that you just got through talking about. Uh, I was just talking about it, I think, last night, within less than 24 hours ago. And, and, and you're being logical. It's that when a white person sees that you are not as confused as what they're used to uh, uh, being in contact with, then they automatically going to withdraw from sharing information with you. Uh, I, I, I mean, that, that's just being logical uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, that, that uh, your enemy is going to do that. Once they see that you're on to something, that, you, that, you, that the light is on with that victim, and uh, uh, they, they get defensive because they know ultimately they're on that team. And this team is, of course, the system of racist white supremacy or white people. Uh, 
but I I, I uh, had to leave off off of the the program uh, for something that was a matter of importance, uh, or I would have wanted to ask her because I believe she said she was mentioning about her resume, and she said something about she was in uh, in law enforcement. Is that correct? Chicago police, yes. I, I didn't hear you. you broke up. Chicago police, yes, sir. Chicago police. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And and my my question would have been, uh, uh, could you uh, tell me, have you ever uh, mistreated and or harmed a non-white person? Uh, what, did anybody ask her anything along those terms? I didn't ask about her police experience, although that particularly being in Chicago, man. Uh, I'm telling you, it's one of the places, it's one of the, I mean, everywhere where non-white people are in contact with white people, uh, you're going to have, you're going of course, you're going to have uh, problems. Uh, but it's especially in law enforcement, you know, I, I would have been just, I was just curious about that. Uh, but before I got off the line, in case she's on the on also on the program, I just want to give a thanks to Pam because I received her books, uh, received all of her books, and uh, I, I, it's, it's you know, you know, uh, it's a, I'm, I'm having a good time reading her her uh, her books, you know, from her and her other co uh, co workers as far as the, the books that the series that she uh, uh, has uh, available, uh, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was uh, curious about her with with uh, law enforcement and her, and her experiences uh, with non-white people and how she related to them. Uh, uh, other than that, uh, I, I've been in contact with another non-white person uh, that uh, he, he and I uh, exchanged views, and the last thing he was telling me that he was doing was he thinks it's a uh, uh, constructive agenda is to the idea. His idea and mine is to convince uh, white people that uh, uh, somehow that uh, we are not different from them. If I able to be successful in convincing them, uh, whether or not I'm, I'm uh, just like them, then uh, that's his answer to uh, solving the problem. And I, I just said the only thing I can say to him was, "Well, good luck at what you're doing." As far as that concerned, but uh, that's all I have to say right now. Hi, this is Lashes. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Wow, she was great. Uh, she just dropped that um, jewel for me. I was like, whoa, what? Repeat that again? Um, when she explained that the concept of race as it's used function now stems from the animal productivity of production, so to speak, as I, as I can say it. And when she said that, I said, hmm, that makes sense because I was able to correlate it with the term chattel slavery, which is used in historical accounts of the system of slavery in the United States. Also, I think of the term um, mulatto, how that was used to um, mean like being a donkey or a mule, like, a breeding process of some of some kind, like an animal breeding process. That's what race was used. Well, race was used back in those ancient, not ancient, but 16th century. So I thought that was really 
really interesting, and it also made me think, why does race, or race and white supremacy, constantly is always brought up in the eighth area of acti activity, which is sex? It, it completely makes sense now. And also, it even ties in well with Dr. Francis Cress Welsing theory as well. Even though I, I understood and grasped um, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing theory, but when she dropped that that little jewel tonight, that really put everything into synchronicity for me. So I I enjoy that, and um, I want to know did her did the mention of race as an animal breeding ground production line. Was it referenced in the book you were questioning uh, questioning her on tonight? I do not recall that. I have the book here. Um, Thank you. That was amazing. I don't I think she just dropped it like that. I was just wow. <laughs> Even though she was going through her buckets and buckets of words, I was still in sync in in her linear thought pattern of where she was going. Then she dropped that little jewel. Within her buckets and buckets and buckets of words. Hmm. I'm look. I don't remember that in the book. I'm gonna say no. I'll look through again, but I'm gonna say no that that's not in the book. I could be wrong, but I'm I'm looking now. That was just that was one huge revelation out of her interview tonight. It really was. Hmm. It makes total sense why sex is always brought up in regards to racism and white supremacy. Sex in terms of Dr. Franz Kress's Wilson theory of, um, you know, um, their numbers are dwindling and there's not enough of them being produced. It totally makes sense. The whole birth of dirt concept made by, you know, different racial, uh, white males out there in, um, in higher uh, levels of racism, white supremacy that dictate to create laws and stuff like that. It also ties in with the whole concept of what we call African-Americans in the system of racism, white supremacy, black people, how they were even classified as three-fourths of a human being. It totally makes sense now. Yeah, a lot of the terms that they use around that, I think, are like stock. I think uh, that's one that they talk about, poor stock, eugenics. They have a lot of those terms, I think, are pretty similar um, with regards to the way that they talk about racism, white supremacy, in the same way that they talk about breeding animals. Uh, even that term gentrification, one of the listeners brought it up where they were saying the etymology going to gentry, noble men, white men. Uh, when they say gentrification, I think a lot of their terms uh, pretty much go back to that same concept of breeding good bloodline or good stock that sort of that sort of thinking like you were saying with mulatto as well miscegenation i think that's even one too mm -hmm. like even in europe with the power estrelons of white people they have this whole term referring to the blue blood and the red blood mm -hmm. i guess that's where that comes from as well but one thing that your guest made she said that race is not biological it's a social construct which i understand however how race has been used even before it was known to be applied to quote unquote human beings let's go back just to the animal breeding process it was always tied tied into a biological sense in turn even though it is a social construct do you understand what i'm saying absolutely and with regards to 
individuals who classify themselves as white, that is not a quote unquote biological category, but a primary consideration with regards to how white people are supposed to function and what this is all about. It does tie to biology with regards to what you're supposed to be doing in the bedroom, what you're not supposed to be doing in the bedroom, consequences both ways for all of that and just control of people, uh, biological there's a huge biological component to the way that white people think about themselves and the practice of racism, white supremacy. I'd say there seems to be a central biological component to the way that they think about themselves and the practice of racism, white supremacy. Yes, I do agree. I'm still looking through the book. I'm kind of I'm, I'm listening. I'm with you. I'm, I'm just looking through the book to make sure I didn't miss that. But I don't think uh, I don't think that that part in the, is in the book about uh, race and, and it being connected in any way with, with uh, breeding or animals. Um, I'm still looking. But it totally makes sense when she put it out there. It just, my brain just said, oh, there's the correlation. Child slavery, three-fourths of human being, mulatto, uh, the term miscegenation as you brought up, uh, the term gentrification as you brought up, the term of uh, red, uh, blue blood and uh, red blood family stock and old old colonial Europe and how power is transferred from one line to the other in generations, even going on today with the whole like queen and the king nonsense. It totally all makes sense. And even with the concept, I could be wrong, after all, I am a victim, the concept of white male, like patriarchy, is even central and centered around sex. The practice of sex as power or domination, sex is like the decor component in all of this. Kind of like the nucleus, along with their culture. And at the same time, it's just like, what kind of gut, what kind of germ is this? <laughs> Isn't that your guy, uh, Gunnar Murdahl? He has a great oh, quote in his book, book, The uh, yes, Center. Where mm -hmm. he says uh, the center of, I think he used the term segregation. I just switched it to white supremacy, but the center of segregation is about control of sex. I can even get the exact quote because I used it in my uh, book review for Pamp since she was mentioned. Uh, racismws.com, racismws.com. But uh, the interracial con game, uh, she has, or I used it there. I'll, I'll go ahead and get it so I won't have to ramble. But he has a quote where he says that that's right at the center of it all. I was even thinking there's, a, oh, the birther movement, what they've been complaining about President Obama. That goes to it as well. And even them having that as the, the name of their group, the birther movement, I think. It's right there again. And back to her definition, your guest definition of um, the miscegenation law. If it was, if, if it was wrong in a crime for non-whites to marry white or white to marry a non-white what we call non-white today but it wasn't a crime for non-whites what we call today to marry each other it just seemed like the only race that was really functioning was themselves people who are now classified as white you know what i mean yep she said she didn't understand that i thought that was uh very clear, very logical. I was glad you brought that up, but yeah, that was the one where she said she didn't she didn't understand your question. So it's like you're breaking the law by marrying a white person, but other non-whites are not breaking the law by marrying other non-whites. Whether it's a let's use something in today's term, 
a quote-unquote African-American and a quote-unquote Puerto Rican. They can marry each other, but that's not breaking the law. But if a white person marries a non-white person, the white person is breaking the law. And it was only exclusive to white men mainly to sow their oats and sewer other non-white people, even though the white female herself did the same thing. And even her, like that piece where you quoted in the book where the white woman was like, no, 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 it wasn't in the book. You mentioned that you came into contact with another woman or interviewed a woman, something, a white female. And she said that, um, you know, when a black man doesn't like pay attention to her, she doesn't feel like she's, um, her femininity, her femininity is not defined or acknowledged. What kind of madness is that? It all centers, like their whole identity is centered around sex. And their identity is centered around as well as anyone who is not white. Without non-whites, their identity means nothing. Without the control of sexual behavior of non-whites, their sexual escapades and free will, so to speak, means nothing. That uh, Murdoch quote is, sex is the principle around which the whole structure of white supremacy is organized. Gunnar Murdoch. I think he's accurate. And I had that on recording. Mm. We had a recording of that. And the racist that I'm referencing who said all that, that was recorded and got lost in the shuffle. It was a tragedy because she that was another one. She like first time she revealed tons of information. She had read Mr. Fuller's book and she agreed that having sex white people having sexual intercourse with non-white people is rape, uh shouldn't be done. Uh she said that uh she was still at this time, even when she agreed with all this, she said she was still having sexual intercourse with black males and was gonna continue to do so. She said uh she had tried to talk to her uh victim, sex partner about racism but they were not interested in doing so and then she grew up here in uh, seattle she said that she for people who know the area garfield high school uh, mostly black uh, high school at least it was but she said that uh at that time black males did not find her to be sexually attractive and she said that this negatively impacted her self-esteem and her sense of femininity and womanhood but then when she went to college university of washington uh, when she went to college, that this switched and that they did, uh, black males did see her as sexually attractive. And she felt like that was a growth in her power as a white woman racist, uh, knowing that she had sexual control over black males. And she said on the same recording, she went to either she, yeah, I think she said she went to or was going to some dance program in North Carolina with predominantly uh, where there were going to be a significant number of black females. And she said she felt like she had that same control over black females that if she wanted, she could have got at least some or one of them to participate in some anti-sexual behavior uh, because she had that same power as a white woman. Lost records. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you probably already answered uh, a question that I uh was thinking about earlier Gus. Uh but I'll mention bring it up anyway. Uh uh with the advent of uh did she ever admit to the idea that uh 
white people do, do not have any interest of solving the problem of racism and white supremacy? She threw out a lot of buckets and even uh, she threw out the dichotomous uh, dichotomous thinking argument, which I hate. I've even I've heard that quite a few times when you just ask a direct question. Uh, are you a racist? Oh, my God, that dichotomous thinking. And yes, no. And it's more complicated. And I even hear some uh, victims, unfortunately, pick that up. And that's another one where I ask people, use your common sense. Any other time, uh, if you asked if you have a wife or a female partner, are you pregnant? If she responded, oh, my God. Thing. I can't believe you're asking me yes and no questions or honey right. are you having an affair oh my god I can't believe you're asking me yes no I mean use your common sense at any rate she said uh, generally no I don't see that no generally white people they're not going to stop practicing racism but there are small pockets uh, of white people she, so she says that are you know they're down for the cause and, and really trying to, to end the system But then at the same time, they'll come back around uh, uh, with this quote-unquote honesty. And you ask them, well, do you, have you ever, or, or do you have sex with non-white people? You know, it, which I see as a direct contradiction. In other words, what, what is constructive about having sex with a non-white person and you have no interest at all into solving the number one problem that affects them. I mean, it, it's, it's, you're talking about on evidence on how uh, sex between white people and their victims actually warps the, the, the thinking process of the non-white victim. I mean, it, 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 doesn't get, it doesn't get any more clearer to me than that. You know, uh, uh, and uh, so, you know, I mean, I would, I would, I would probably be able to guess correctly that out of all of these white people who who identify themselves as uh, anti-racist, I think it's they. I heard some of them may have called themselves. I, I would imagine that a lot of them are either have or presently are having sex with non-white people, which is a you know, I mean, that right there alone is, is, a, is a huge conflict of interest. Amen. I met her at the White Privilege Conference. Like I said, I didn't observe sexual intercourse going down, but the founder of that conference, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., soothing lotion, is married to a white woman. He's had a child with two different white women. Uh, I just feel like that Ooh. sort of environment is it's just that right there is enough. Just that right there sends out a clear signal. But I feel like that sort of environment, it would be easy because uh, you're there and, oh, my gosh, uh, Jackie Battalora and all the somebody like uh, J. Love Calderon. She's been on the program before, and she's married to a non-white male. But it would just be easy. You, oh, these white people are down and they're cool and you're all staying in the same hotel for a week. Uh, just and going to the bar when I was there, they were encouraging folks. Let's go out and have drinks and go out and kick it at night together. It would just it would all come together nicely, I think. Um, and I would just go back to the story that I began with when I met her, when all of this concluded and great information. Let's do the program. She asked for the hug. I declined. And that being reported as a problem where I'm being chastised by Dr. Moore, Cowbell, uh, 20 minutes later. And and uh, since I, non Mighty Wick was present, there were only four people in the room when this happened, when she requested the hug and I declined two white females and two victims. 
Non-Mighty Wick was with me for the entire time until I saw Dr. Moore. So it was either Jacqueline Battle or herself who went and ratted me out to Dr. Moore for not giving her a hug or this other white woman. Or it could have been both, I suppose. I, I remember I remember it being talked about, and I, and I think you had some uh, audio visual of the, uh, of the trip uh, also in the process. I remember that white people are very contradictory in, in that in that light and 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 I'm and I and I'm sure they are very much aware of it and how they affect the 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 the, the mentality the, the mental uh health of, of non-white people when they when they when they uh, uh are having sex with them or involved with with sexual uh, uh relations with them uh that uh, how the damage that they 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 do and I guess when she was coming on, coming on you, when she when she saw when she saw you not wanting to to be involved in any way, she accepted that as as as, as a form of resistance from a really from a political sense, from the standpoint whereas okay, this this guy he is not the usual non-white black male that I'm used to being around. Rejection, in other words, is what she got out of it. Uh, sometimes I, I've I've been in that type of environment, and it, and it could be very dangerous. Also, just when a, when a white female is rejected. Amen. Lashes, give me one second because two other people dialed in. I want to make sure they uh, get a comment. Uh, eight five six two and nine seven six nine. Did y'all have anything? Yeah. Good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I was hearing um Lashes speak about using like uh sex to control. Non-white people. That's what she was saying. Am I correct or no? Lashes. No, that's not correct. I was bringing up how okay. sex is the core of racism, white supremacy, aka white culture, and how the guest was talking about the term what we call race today was mm -hmm. practiced in terms and it meant in terms of like animal breeding ground. So when the guest mentioned that it was stated in the law back in the 16th century, that was the case. It made me think of the correlation between the term chattel slavery and why African-Americans were classified as three-fourths of a human being. Because to them, we were not humans. Not human, okay. And the term mulatto, which was often referenced to a person being half mule and half donkey and why for example in this culture there's such a love and passion for animals and having a pure breed dog or to describing a mutt dog or this is a half beagle half this kind of a dog or animal what have you and how in currently still today in europe there's the term of the blue bloods and the red blood family in terms of lineage and royalty and who has power. Is it the blue blood or the red blood in regards to whites in Europe maintaining power and passing on their power to the next generation? So when she put that out there, it just synced up everything as far as like Dr. Francis Christ Welsing theory in terms of, you know, genetic uh, annihilation is fearful. It all centers around sex. And how yeah. sex, the practice of sex, and the domination of sex, or power using sex, is yeah. defines what 
what we called or what they call themselves white male and white female and how they operate within their cultural paradigm, white culture, which is racism, white supremacy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was listening to what you were saying and I'm reading a book called medical apartheid. Mm-hmm. And in the book they're talking about, uh, they, how they use slaves. Like they use basically like animals. They just like, you know, just experiment on them. And they didn't give like consent and anything like that. And oh yes, 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 yes. And how white people always say that black people are like hypersexual. And I think in reality it's actually white people who are hypersexual. Correct. Look at our society today. Everywhere we yes. go, T V, newspaper, selling clothes, selling any kind mm-hmm. of commodity, is sex is the core of selling. Yes. Sex is the core. Yes. Is the yes. core of doing trading, buying, and selling of goods. Yep. yep, and I think you made an excellent point. And I made a connection with that book I was reading, and that's what I wanted to say. The business of pornography is a billion-dollar global business that's controlled by white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, 9769, did you have something you wanted to get in? Your voice is very low. Can you uh, speak up? Hello, can you hear me? Is it? I don't know, is that just... Try, go again, go again. Hello? I can hear you, it's just you sound very low. If you can speak up, I don't know if it's a poor connection. I can hear you, it's just your voice is very low. All right, I'll try my best. Oh, okay, I can hear you. That's better, that's better. Okay. Um, earlier in the in the broadcast, you mentioned that um, it was dangerous for black men to um, to have a have a relationship with white women. Can you please elaborate on that? Uh, are you a new listener? Yes, I am actually. Okay. Ooh, uh, let's see. Uh, do you believe we're in a system of racism, white supremacy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have a suspicion of white people that they could be racist? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, okay. Um, <laughs> one I think is is a huge problem with regards to racism, white supremacy, and why we non-white people, black people, have not been able to solve this problem uh, is that we do not understand what it means to be white. Uh, if one thing, I, I, in fact, I would say today is not even a good uh, broadcast. If you go back and you listen to the first time she was on the program, I think she did a much better job of explaining why it is that to be white means to be racist. Um, she yeah. said it today, but she didn't do a good job. She did a much clearer job without all the unnecessary words and verbiage. Um, but and that's that's something that you need to think on because um, I could be wrong. I incur- I don't try to convince people of that. I just say that's something to think on, and you can just take it as a yeah. question: What does it mean to be white? What yeah. I've concluded, and what one of the have you had sex with a white person? No, I have not. Okay, that's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> what I've concluded is that, particularly with white women. Particularly, that is a huge, and that that was a huge part of the dialogue today. Um, I don't think non-white people think of white women as being racist. That is a huge error. It is a gigantic error. Uh, I think that 
sexual intercourse with white people, period, is one of the worst things that can happen. Uh, Just to be brief about it, if we're in agreement that there is a system of racism, white supremacy, white people have more power than non-white people. There is a huge power differential between the two of us. That said, we can just look at basic laws for how people are supposed to behave when there is a clear difference in power. If we're talking about on a job between an employer and an employee, if we're talking about uh, in prisons, the prison guards and the inmates, even if we're talking about at school uh, with teachers and students, even at the collegiate level, in all of those situations, they have rules that prohibit and restrict sexual, there we go again, sexual intercourse between those who have more power, be it the employer, the warden, yeah. or the professor, they're not supposed to be having sexual intercourse with the people that they are in charge of, the inmates, the mm-hmm. students, the employees. The same should apply within the system of white supremacy. The more powerful white people, they should not be taking advantage of and exploiting individuals that are subject to them. You should not be, and particularly if they say they're about the business of ending this system, but that should not be going on. The second part of it is under this system, all non-white people should have a huge amount of suspicion for any white person. You really, in my view, you should be thinking white equals racist, white equals racist, white equals racist. That being said, do you think it makes logical sense for a non-white person, a victim of racism to have sexual intercourse with a racist? Well, I mean, now that you've breaking it down, the way you, did, um, you just did, you know, it certainly makes sense for it not to go down that way. But, um, yeah, but, um, yeah, I appreciate you for breaking it down that way. For sure. There are books on the subject. Pam, I think one already was mentioned. Pam, she's been on the program many times. If you go back in the archives, you can, uh, we've talked about, we talked about her book and we talked about this subject a lot. Um, you can get the book. Uh, you can visit her website, Racism ws.com uh, it's titled the interracial con game i wrote a review you can read the review or you can listen to the program uh, to see if it will make more sense uh, one of the other huge reasons it, i have concluded that having sexual intercourse with a white person it has a huge detriment with regards to that non-white person's ability to be honest about racism white supremacy and to logically think about white people It has a huge impairment. I would even cite Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., the founder at the White Privilege Conference. He's been a guest on the program. We talked about this with him as well. He's married to a white woman. Um, I feel like it totally destroys your ability to be honest about things uh, because you've got, as Pam says all the time, you cannot go to bed with a white person and then get up and fight racism, white supremacy. Uh, He will say... In one breath, he has a theory. It's called the theory of incapability. And I'm not gossiping. We talked about that. All this stuff is in archives. I'm not you know, trying to talk bad about him. He's a victim, but this is a matter of record. He said that he has a theory of incapability, meaning that white people cannot see black people as anything but niggers. And he explains this on the program, but he's still married to a white woman. And I think I asked him on the program, well, does your wife, who's white and admitted to being a racist, does she see you as a nigger? And he said, yes. And I would just, you know, pause right there. Does that sound like a healthy relationship where a black person wow. is married to someone who thinks of them as a nigger? No. Not at all. 
not gossiping. He's a victim. I'm not even talking bad. Again, this is a matter of record. You can go back and listen. 2009 was his first visit. He came back again in 2010 after I visited the conference. And, you know, it's a matter of record. You can just check it out. As I said, Pam's book, great. You can listen to the program. It's one to think on. But I think white people know that this causes a lot of confusion for non-white people. If we can get them in the bed, they will be ruined. They won't think of us as victims. They'll sympathize with us. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? Oh, well, no. No, I definitely see what you're saying. So if we, you know, if whites and non-whites can have constructive dialogue in these in these kinds of relationships, then what sort of, um, I guess, like progress can be made as far as um, combating the, the system of white supremacy as far as making progress? I didn't hear the first part of the question. What, what did you say? Um, if we could, if whites and non-whites can have these kinds of discussions or dialogues where we can address the relationship issues as far as the power that's being exchanged, as far as, you know, entering these relationships, um, what progress can be made for combating white supremacy? Hmm. Uh, I generally don't get into conversations with white people at this point about uh, having sexual. I will ask if they are having sexual intercourse with a white person, but I generally don't get into debates with them at this point about whether or not that should happen. Uh, and in my view, it's an act of racism, white supremacy. It is a maximum act of racist aggression. Anytime a white person is doing this behavior, encouraging this sort of behavior, misbehavior. Um, I generally just try to keep it focused on getting constructive information and a better understanding of what it means to be a white person and the system of racism, white supremacy on the whole. Uh, I generally, it's been my experience, white people, they get very angry, very hostile at any suggestion that they stay out of bed with non-white people. Um, many of the white people that I've talked to, those have been some of the most hostile responses that I've got from white people. Uh, I had a white woman who uh, burst into tears. Uh, we were having this discussion. Uh, I had a white man who was my white friend at the time. Uh, he was my white friend. He was married to a white woman. So I felt he should have no emotional investment in this at all because, you know, he's off the market and he's with a white woman. He got furious. He began cursing and didn't even want to shake my hand when we left. I was flabbergasted. <laughs> like, what? I don't I don't understand. Why is this such an emotional uh, attachment for you. Uh, it seems like you should have, you don't have a dog in this race, but apparently he did as a white man. And that's just what I've concluded based on their reactions, that this is very important that white people be able to maintain sexual access to their victims whenever they want it. They know that it benefits their system. If offspring are produced, they're going to be able to have another confused generation of offspring who can help maintain the system. And they can totally destroy that victim, the person that they've got in bed. They can totally destroy their will and ability to fight against racism, white supremacy, because now the enemy is right there. And what I've heard generally is that if they stay together, if there's a marriage or a long term partnership and children, generally that right there will be enough to extinguish any dialogue on racism. Generally, the white person, from what I've seen, whether it's a white woman or a white man, they generally put their foot down and say, hey, we are not going to have a whole lot of chatting about racism. And that's that. And that's generally what happens. I see. Well, thank you, you know, for definitely um, answering my questions. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. Right on. Uh, did we miss Shadow? Did you have anything you wanted to get in? Did you have anything? 
line is open. Did you have any comments or are you just hanging out to listen? All right, I'll assume he's good. Uh, Pam, the address for her website again is racismws.com, Interracial Con Game, and other books, but that was referenced specifically. Anyone who wants to get more information, you can also dig in the archives. And here we talked about that book specifically, and she gave her view on why that shouldn't happen. Uh, it's one of the worst things ever. Uh, I would also say go back and listen to that program with uh, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. the first time around. It was May 2009. Uh, just to get more information about the whole environment at the White Privilege Conference. And then the last, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes of the, the, well, not the last 15 minutes, but the last 15 minutes before we went to the phone line, we talked specifically about the sexual intercourse piece and just hearing how he responded to that. Fascinating. He's a victim of racism, but just hearing how he responded to that whole conversation about we need to stay out of bed with white people until racism has been solved. Very revealing. Soothing lotion. Infamous. Infamous. Soothing lotion. Soothing lotion. Uh, we did overtime today. Anybody have a last sentence before we wrap up? No, thank you. Yeah, I have something to say. I was just thinking. Um, if white people think of non-white people as animals or like childlike, then why would they want to have sexual intercourse with them? And if they, if, they, if they do want to do that, and they do want to do that, what kind of people are they? Like, that, that's what I was thinking. That's my thoughts. Psychopaths. Here. Here, here. Here, here. Okay. Jerry Sandusky, I say that's the way you should think about it. It's Jerry Sandusky. Um, every time out, that's anytime. I wouldn't care if it's uh, the black person or the non-white person is 60 years old uh, and the white person is, you know, 50, whatever the case. It's Jerry Santusky every time. It's total perversion and pedophilia. As you said, they call us animals and monkeys and apes and all this other stuff. Why would you want to be in bed with someone that you consider less than human? It's total pathology in every way, shape, and form. And I think they even view it as that. I think Mr. Fuller, that's why he has it in the word guide, that they call it kinky sex. Um, if you want to know, we were just talking about it with uh, Renithia Tate for the Renithia Tate, right, right, right. She said mm -hmm. the same thing. She said the exact same thing on her program that that's, hey, I can go experiment. I can go hop in with these niggas and we can do all kinds of things. I can stick things up their rectum and get down and do all kinds of, of freakish and perverted things. That's the way that's the way that they view us. And that's the way that they view that sex act, sex act and all of those perversions that goes into the damage that it, that it does to the non-white person's mind. Sex is huge. I think we really undervalue that when Dr. Welsing talks about this is the act that is responsible for us being here. This is how people are produced and white people's disdain and perversion and pathologies in the bedroom speak volume to what they think about life on the whole, the creator and us and them to some degree. I, I wonder too, like how, like you know, like how white people can look at non-white people as not not human, but I don't think like non-white people see white people as not human. We see them as I angels. think it's difficult. We see yes. them as angels. <laughs> and I, and I, and yes, yes, and I don't see why it's so hard when they've done so many things and still do so many things. How it's so hard for non-white people to see that these people are monsters and demons. That's what domination looks like. Uh, the person that called from a block number, do you have something quick you wanted to get in before we wrap up? Block number? 
Uh, yeah, I just wanted to know how do you feel about black people uh, being in sexual relationships with other non-white people who are not um, black, like Asians or Latinos or you know people like that. Um, what a question to end on. Uh, that has come up a couple times before. Um, what I have said is that I frequently believe that many times black people that are in these arrangements with a sexual arrangements with a non-black, non-white person, I think a lot of times that that is a response to racism, white supremacy. We have been, as Dr. Umar said yesterday, we've been so conditioned to hate anything black, including ourselves. Uh, just anything. If I can get as far away from black, even if I can't get a white person, if I can get a non-black, non-white person, I do think that there is a lot of that. Uh, however, I do not uh, speak against or discourage that just because I've seen that it is so difficult just to get the no sex with white people thing down. Uh, I just that is more than I can chew. Uh, plus, there are. um It's just more than I can deal with. Like, I, I totally see the racism and how it operates in some of those arrangements uh with regards to yeah. just the conditioning but it's like hey um how much can you deal with we could add that to, or i could add that to the list of things but it's like gee whiz there's enough i have enough trouble just with the no sex with white people thing that to add that as well uh, at this point i'm willing to concede hey as long as it's not a white person fine well to me i think black people should just stay with black people but but that's just my opinion I, and that's all i want to say I totally respect that. Totally respect that. Yeah. Right That's on. Fine. Right on. Glad you got your question in. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. The Warmth of Other Suns. Fourth installment. Isabel Wilkerson, black female. Thoroughly enjoying the book so far, even though we're very early in it. Um, don't even think we're right at the quarter mark. So haven't even covered that much of it yet. But Tune in tomorrow, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Looking forward. Uh, we'll be back every day for the remainder of the week. I uh, hope it was of some constructive value uh, for folks listening in. Uh, if you like the program, so what? If you don't like the program, so what? We will be back. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Anybody want to do the prayer to wrap things up? Make sure that we do not forget our ancestors, our family. They too have suffered, struggled against racist man, racist woman, racist child. Draw on their energy, their strength, their resilience as we persevere to totally, permanently end the reign of white terrorism and institute a global universal system of justice. Make sure we all keep in mind our goal, universal man, universal woman, high expectations for what we can become once we permanently neutralize white people, racists, white supremacists. It has been time. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm a victim, brother. No a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.